putting it out analog style like i'm um yeah because you know like just after a while like just you know you get eye strain just like looking at a screen i I hate reading stuff online i just like to you know i got that couch here so whenever it's time to like read something i just lie down um Mm. i guess for me it's completely naturalized at this point um uh, just the experience of everything on on the phone even movies to some degree cinemas now you know um, Mm -hmm. I, i hear filmmakers complaining about you know, the, the miniaturization of cinema, you know, on these handheld mm-hmm. devices. But it's, it's now almost just completely, not, I almost don't think in widescreen cinema anymore. I mean, well, what do you think about this, the way that sort of technology is changing our perception of media this way? That's, um, that's a kind of a big uh, opener, isn't it? But, um, uh, yeah, uh, I mean, I have a bunch of comments about this. Um, but I guess the first one is, so you said that you're used to this kind of new media, you're used to reading on Kindle. And obviously, you know, a lot of my reading has to be done electronically mm-hmm. now. If Dan sends something or whatever, you know, I, I'm not going to print it all out. Although I used to do that like 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, do you find it, though, that it's harder for you to remember stuff? Because just I, I recently read Breakfast of Champions uh, on Kindle, and then I bought a hard copy to take notes and I, I mean, I just remembered much more in the second reading. And it wasn't just because uh, it was a second reading, right? It, it was also because it, it's a print book, right? It's just, you know, you could naturally flip through pages. The, the act of taking down notes in the margins, right? That, that gives it a lot more visceral access to the text. Uh, I do find that I remember better uh, when I'm just reading print, right? And, and there's that kind of tactile kind of element to it. Yeah, uh, I, I perfectly understand this. I mean, I'm, uh, I'm, I, I have an obsession with paperbacks, you know, mm-hmm. and, and the whole culture of um, uh, uh, paperback novels that kind of came up sort of mid-century, especially in Britain, where suddenly you just have a, a whole bunch of really affordable um, English literary classics, you know, with, you know, just 75 pence for a copy of, uh, you know, um, Shekhov or something mm-hmm. like that and it's small enough to carry around in your pocket and also that you know the literary fetishism that goes on with having a hand up you know you can um the tactility you can make mm-hmm. notes in the margin um you take books out from the library and people read leave sort of things in the in the notes and what have you mm-hmm. um do you think do you think that's something that's um what what do you think that represents in a way because in in you know, I had some like in my notes that were prepared for our conversation. And I was telling you before our conversation in our email correspondence that like there are lots of ideas. I've got lots of ideas about what I want to talk about with you in, in regards to kind of art and also politics, because that makes up a, 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 mm-hmm. a, a decent portion of kind of the work you put out on auto machination. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, kind of this this whole idea of art and politics and what have you. And it, it seems to come back again to this question of um, society's freedoms versus arts freedoms and this whole question of kind of um the the larger social context of kind of art because you know art is something that appears within culture so how does it relate to social problems and you know ideas of you know Mm -hmm. um uh, like social decline for instance and cultural stagnation and you know technological stagnation even um uh, it's it's tricky because we seem you know we were talking about 
the 90s in our email correspondence. And it seems that that's a really big transitional moment from the analog to the digital to like mm -hmm. this new in internet age we're living in now, which, you know, we had internet sort of stage one, which was kind of very utopian, very kind of Silicon Valley. But now it's much more social media, highly mediated, you know, lots of market research and algorithms. Um, one can't help but see that as a larger context for our culture as well. And sort of what you talk about on automachination with sort of ideas about sort of cultural decline or um, ideas about, um, say, uh, sort of dumbing down of culture, for instance, sort of a homogeneity in culture, mm -hmm. which I think is a very sort of, is symptomic of kind of neoliberal culture and sort of, you know, what you might call techno-capitalist sort of culture but but this whole question of kind of arts freedom as opposed to society's freedom i think it's it's there in sort of the way we talk about art and the way we talk about content and form and what have you kind of like what's art's responsibility to society and in what way does arts um freedom um you might say have to do with um social freedom i mean so what what do you what so like obviously i i don't think of you as a guy who would say art is politics or, mm -hmm. or kind of like i mean i think if, if I were to go by what I see in your videos, I'd say you were much more of an art for art's sake kind of person. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but but what does but what does that mean now? Because I don't think it's the kind of art for art's sake we get in the um, you know the writings of Trotsky or even mm -hmm. Walter Benjamin or mm -hmm. even um, someone like um, um, uh, uh, the, the Ruskin, the modern painter's writer. Mm -hmm. So what does art for art's sake mean now? What does art's freedom mean now? Kind of in this sort of, in the year 2021, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, so, uh, I mean, there, there's like, there's a few things there. We said we were yeah. going to talk about like the 90s, I guess, in general. Yeah. Maybe maybe that would be like a little bit later, but just kind of a... This, guess, this is just kind of a precise of the yeah, ideas yeah, yeah, I yeah. had going into this conversation. Yeah, stuff yeah, I yeah. wanted to talk about you with, with in regards yeah. to like, you know... Um, well, I mean, uh, so first of all, growing up, just to touch on the 90s briefly, like I, I feel very lucky in the fact that, well, I, I'm a bit older than you, but when I was growing up, um, I was kind of like, you know, right in the middle of the transition period from, you know, analog to, to digital, as it were. And uh, I mean, during that time, I kind of had the best of both worlds in the sense that, uh, you know, when I look back to my childhood, like the, the mere fact that I, I had so much kind of physical freedom to kind of roam, you know, different neighborhoods in, in, in Brooklyn. Uh, I was, you know, out uh, late even as, as a child. And th there was never really a sense of like, you know, fear for safety, right? Mm -hmm. there, there was no kind of, you know, intense pressure to schedule everything and everyone. You see like kids like having play dates. And like, to me, that's so like unreal, unreal, right? I mean, that, that's, that's not really a way to grow up, at least in my eyes. And uh, when it comes to sort of, you know, digital media coming out of the internet, uh, uh, sort of happening around the time I was, you know, maybe uh, 10, 11, 12 years old, 13 years old, like when it first started, it was a lot more anonymous in many ways, right? Mm -hmm. And just like television, when it first started, it by definition had to like bring in very few people, you know, comparatively speaking, since very few people could afford televisions. Well, same thing with the internet, right? Um, mm -hmm. Many people didn't even have computers, right? Much less like a, a, a modem of some sort, much less being able to pay, you know, like a $10 or $20, whatever it was fee, probably was actually a lot more. We're just kind of like thinking back to it a little uh, better. But um, so that, that took a lot of people out of the equation already, but it was also very anonymous. Like my first interaction, action online was like making AOL screen names, right? 
-hmm. And there's no like, you know, there's no kind of a a conception that it's going to be linked to your identity, Mm -hmm. right? You could go to like chat rooms when you're 12, Mm -hmm. 13, you can meet people, right? You could develop actual friendships that way. That's what I did uh, many times. You can meet people in internet forums. Like when I was growing up, like a, a major thing that I did like a lot of my politics came from just arguing with people online, you know, the same shit that I do now. Um, just like, you know, arguing with people online. But th- the difference between now versus like internet forums in the early 2000s is you had nobody. And this is one of the things that disturbs me. Like, you had nobody that could upvote or downvote a comment that you make in a forum somewhere. Yeah. You only yeah. had the text. And whoever they were responding to, they had one of two choices. They could either come up with a better response than what you put forward, in which mm-hmm. case, you know, you start to lose that argument or you win that argument and everybody's able to see it, right? There's mm-hmm. there's no, uh, you know, it, it's true that you could have a pile on, you know, like a bunch of people in a forum, like all trying to attack you. But generally speaking, um, you don't have this kind of sense of like dumbed down numerical supremacy. And the fact that like, you know, you look at comments on, you know, uh, uh, newspaper sites, you look at, um, you know, YouTube or whatever, the fact that everything is geared towards, we're going to make the most viral type comments, you know, most prominent. When when we think of like what goes viral and the kinds of incentives that 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 taps in, just like biologically speaking, um, those are all the wrong incentives. Like truth, you know, people say, you know, truth eventually wins out, you know, perhaps in some ways it does in some places and in some, you know, situations, I guess. But uh, in general, what tends to win out is virality. Right. I think I think the interesting thing, though, about the the sort of I mean, I was very young kind of um, in in, uh, the late 90s, but it seems retrospectively that the Internet um, was was sort of um, a more optimistic place. Mm -hmm. Like there there seemed to be a more, how how should one say, libertarian uh, Mm -hmm. feeling in the air that kind of, you know, this was unregulated. People could share all sorts of stuff online Mm -hmm. that kind of, you know, it was. It was, um, but now it seems to be the opposite where, you know, pretty much everything one does is involved in someone's market research project. Yeah. And, you know, algorithms and what have you are, are creating these literal echo chambers mm-hmm. where, you know, like, like, like you were alluding to the tabloid content and this sort of tabloidization of kind of all these online spaces in terms of, um, um, sort of uh, the most, uh, sort of hysterical, most, uh, most, uh, intense, sort of a f- feedback, you know, kind of stories about, um, you know, we, we've seen the rise of um, these um, these people you talk about in your videos sometime, like these um, these alt-right people, kind of these uh, political extremists, you know, sort of Facebook um, um, sort of conspiracy theorists and what have mm-hmm. you, kind of all, all these things that are kind of um, um, sort of, I think, I think they're emblematic of, of, of the, the, way that, the way that kind of the internet and social media have changed kind of culturally mm-hmm. in a big way. Yeah. Like, um, um, do, do you think kind of like it's it's a case that there's a lot less possible now online or that the the internet brings up people's worst tendencies now? Uh, I, you know, I'm not sure if like in an absolute sense, uh, less is possible now, but definitely, you know, just like imagine just, you know, philosophically speaking, you have some sort of causal chain. It's true that the closer and closer that you get to present to the present time, you have choked out any number of possibilities along the way, right? Just mm-hmm. by the logic of any kind of causal chain and the kind of decisions that have been made over the past 30 years, right? Since the advent of the internet, uh, have choked out 
you know, maybe not completely certain possibilities, but I definitely don't like the way that things are going. And the most kind of crass uh, instantiation of this, like I, I was reading yeah. some, you know, comment a couple months ago, some, some guy was like, you know, uh, look, look, look at like 20, you know, 11 Twitter versus today. You know, uh, these days I can't even call a fat bitch fat anymore, which is true. I mean, you would get banned for like, you know, making fun of someone on Twitter online. And, you know, I, I think it's a worthwhile kind of discussion to have in terms of, you know, should people be allowed to insult, you know, others in this kind of, you know, centralized platform? I mean, whatever. But the, the, the real issue is that all of this tends to like creep out into other categories of, you know, like, for example, like when I when I put up political videos, uh, I, you know, when I, for example, put up that, you know, uh, Palestine video, I was definitely mm -hmm. very conscious of the fact that this could easily at some point get my channel flagged. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, th that's because like, uh, although like certain types of woke ideology is in, that's only because it's useful to the ruling class uh, taking, you know, the positions that I take on Israel, Palestine, that's not useful to anyone in the ruling class. So this is the thing that, you know, has to get flagged. Um, I've always like think like this didn't cross my mind 20 years ago. But now since I'm on YouTube, I'm thinking like there's definitely a possibility that within five years or like whatever that my channel gets taken down, right? Because I have, you know, I, I have a, a video, you know, where I read from Mark Twain and I don't set, censor the dirty words, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, I read, I, I read a James Baldwin essay and I read the essay as he fucking wrote it. And that's might get me flagged, right? Like the, the fact that people have to think about this, right? Um, and the fact that everything is so like, if, if, if you have a website and Google for whatever reason, for a good reason or a bad reason, if Google decides to punish you, you don't have a recourse, right? The only people that are going to find you are people that use Bing or maybe DuckDuckGo or some other yeah. search engine. If, you, if YouTube decides to take down your channel, you don't have any other easily accessible platforms that could allow your ideas to go viral. So you're, you're playing essentially in what seems like an ever-expanding sandbox. And I guess in some ways it is, but in other ways, it's clearly constricting, constricting, constricting. And I'm very conscious of this fact, right? So there's definitely stuff going on now that it's only going to accelerate for the worse, right, um, uh, down the road. There's, there's, there's the sense that, you know, like, um, you know, what, what you were saying there, it, it gets me in mind of just how, how prevalent culture wars content is, is on the internet and, you know, yeah. this whole sort of um, diff different sides um, uh, taking sort of, this game of one-upmanship, political one-upmanship, and what have mm -hmm. you, um, uh, and and how it becomes a kind of a tabloid media with people sort of doing these sensational, shocking stories. With, and you know, it, it, I suppose I, I like because you make political content and you kind of address these sort of um, culture wars that go on in regards to you know you you were saying to me in the email kind of like um, the balkanization I think mm -hmm. of like uh, culture is that is mm -hmm. that what you said. Like I was specifically kind of, referring to balkanization of arts, but I mean we could talk about art. culture too. But, yeah, it's both. But, but this kind of soft police activity that goes on all the time mm -hmm. on on so and seems almost like now a, a symptom of like this highly mediated um, um you know internet kind of online experience we have and it's now a part of our everyday mm -hmm. um daily lives. That kind of soft police activity and, and management that goes on all the time is is really kind of 
inescapable it's, it has mm. more and more a grip on our, our lives so that kind of yeah you know in contrast to how we thought about the internet kind of at the beginning where kind of you know you could set up these parlors these zones these like um sort of your, your own kind of little uh mm-hmm. synthetic kind of domain or what have you and uh it's and it where it can become a haven for the autodidact or mm. or or I'm a, the hacker, what have you. Now and, and, it's, it's, uh, and it still is. This is the thing, like, depending on your temperament, who you are, what you're up to, there's a ton of shit that you could, like, learn. And, you know, you could enrich yourself so much, you know, being online if you avoid the very kind of human pitfalls that are being constantly set up more and more and more in your way. Like you talked about that culture war content. It's like these people aren't even talking about politics. Like they have absolutely no bone in these fights. Like yeah, yeah. It, it, it's like not relevant to them at all, but because they have no meaning in their lives, right? This becomes kind of this, you know, simulation they're engaging in, right? Politics mm-hmm. is a kind of simulation for them. And, yeah. um, you know, a lot of them are just having a good time. Like, you know, the, you know it, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's like from Killing of a Chinese Book. Right? I'm only happy when I'm, you know, angry when I'm sad. And it's like, yeah, like, you know, I, I, I definitely, you know, I, I definitely, you know, it's weird to say. I said this before, but it's like I, I enjoy when people, you know, talk shit to me online. Uh, I, I enjoy some of my anger. I mean, I grew up as an angry child. And instead of kind of allowing it to have negative consequences, um, you know, there's other ways to feed it that are, that are more constructive. But, you know, for, for many people that have like no way to like stop themselves and that's all they have in their lives, they're going to be like all day obsessed with these, you know, a culture war uh, bullshit, right? So, you know, and, and I think long term, though, I think it becomes we- like a, it becomes like a feedback loop, though. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If, if you mind me, my saying, like, um, uh, for instance, there are all, all these kind of, um, uh, I, I've called them almost kind of agent provocateur, kind of um, public social media pranksters, you know, like that were quite common during Trump's election, who would sort of do all this vile um, publicity seeking. And then um, liberal pundits on the Internet would make, you know, days and days and days of worth, worth of content about these vile people. And yeah. People would watch those videos and they would go yeah. like, and it, it just becomes a, a, a self-perpetuating thing, a kind of a feedback yeah. loop of just vile horribleness where uh, where the derogation and and the condemnation and all the kind of the, the points that the liberal pundits are making are just um uh, they're stripped of any power they're stripped of any force because it's just it's reflexive it's their yeah. derogation becomes vice where they criticize the person but it, it, it's uh, there's um there's an old like uh comedy sketch on the mm. from a guy called Lemmy. It's like you gave them exactly what they wanted. You gave them exact you gave them attention. Like yeah. are you happy? You gave them what you that's 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 how it so and, I, and they need to they need to give them attention yeah. because they 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 need to feed off of the anger because it's like you know there are like people that are motivated mm. by like oh you know I hate Trump and I hate Trump voters because I don't know I was walking down the fucking yeah. street with my black girlfriend and somebody shouted something from a car at her right and mm. and uh you know that got me really angry and it's like you know, like I, I get in an interpersonal level why you would be angry at that person or like a category of people in general. But, you know, just generally speaking, like, I mean, what Biden has done against black people in America, it's just incomparable. Right. Yeah. And and mm-hmm. like like instead of getting angry at things that matter like that, instead, you're angry at, you know, some shit that you saw on YouTube. Everybody's angry at shit they see on YouTube. You know, it, yeah, it, it, does, it doesn't seem very sustainable. Oh, it's, oh, true, but it's, yeah. it's also but it's, it's a number of things too as well i mean like it, what um what we were talking about kind of um that i i very early in my kind of when i started making youtube videos i made sort of videos about slam poetry and um uh, because you know I, I kind of like had opinions about slam poetry i didn't think it was very good and i, I made these videos 
And actually, of all the videos on my channel, they're the most popular. And it's why I get kind of most people coming to my channel. Mm -hmm. But not long after I made those videos, I started looking at other videos on YouTube of similar people sort of making these videos about why slam poetry is bad. This Instagram poet is bad. What, you know, why so-and-so sucks. And it, you, you see how it just becomes another content farm. Mm -hmm. It becomes another kind of um, uh, cottage industry. Yeah. Of people making these videos where, you know, on cue, they have their derogative opinion about this and that, and mm -hmm. it becomes just um, a, another commodity. You know, it's something mm -hmm. that kind of, you know, people want to watch because, you know, that's what they want. Yeah. And, and that repulsed me. That kind of repelled me. And yeah, that, I that's, agree. That's the danger yeah. I would always feel with making political content, which is why I kind of like, I think that's 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 the the risk that I kind of, I'm sort of unwilling to take because I, I don't, I don't want to like, I mean, my hands are much dirtier than this. Like I'll say yeah. that much. But, yeah. but political content is like something that like kind of, you know, you, you get you, you unavoidably end up talking to, to very kind of stupid people. And yeah, kind of, of course. Know, yeah. Very stupid, pathologically mm -hmm. kind of a violent people in a way. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's the frustration of especially being in Britain kind of during this huge popular uh, populist nationalist um, revival that we've had now of kind of where everyone has this fantasy idea of what britain is kind of great colonial britain it's a fucking pack of lies mm -hmm. you know but people put the myth first it yeah. absolutely the myth comes first every time yeah. and that's what informs their blind racism and their xenophobia yeah yeah and well, yeah I, I i agree about you know how, how dirty it feels like first of all like if you ever like you know uh, look up tutorials or whatever like how to get you know a successful youtube channel how to get you know more subscribers like whatever <laughs> Almost yeah. everything revolves around you have to absolutely maintain a specific kind of niche, mm -hmm. which, you know, I guess it makes sense, but it's really, it really overemphasizes a very kind of strict kind of content, right? Which, you know, if you're like an artist or if, if you have like multifaceted interests, yeah. um, it's sort of hard to do that, right? Especially yeah. since you want to bring out other parts of yourself and to, you know, you know, put it out there, but mm -hmm. you know um, uh, I'm not sure exactly why you feel uh, dirty about like political content, but the reason why it makes me feel dirty is I constantly think like, shouldn't I be spending my time on, on things that only I can do. Right. It's not that, you know, uh, I, I have, you know, uh, bad political content. You know, when I made that Zionism video, the, the birth of Israel, I was like, you know what, let me make the best video that's out there on yeah. the founding of Israel, the contradictions mm -hmm. and why, you know, we are where we are today. And I, th and I think I did, that. I think it's one of the best things you could find on. And you could see in the comments, mm -hmm. people were like, wow, like, you know, I study this all the time and this pr presents so much stuff that I didn't know at the same time. Whenever I'm doing that, I know there's plenty of people out there that if they had the will to do so, they could probably do an even better job than, than, than I am in this kind of stuff. But the, the things that people cannot do has to do with like if I if I go for like two hours, like talking about, you know, a book of poetry or whatever. People can't do that. People can't break down a poem. People can't break down books like they just don't know how. Um, and, you know, uh, the, the fact that my mind constantly uh, I'm very my mind is very very prone to just wandering all the time and i have yeah. to do so many things to keep myself in line like i have to always keep a strict schedule when i take my daily walks i have to make sure that no you're not going to be listening to some fucking podcast you're not going to be listening to some like you know it's the equivalent of like tmz shit except with like you know cultural you know warriors right it's just that that's like the new celebrity culture garbage 
uh, I have to tell myself, like, you know what, like you have to like sit, you have to walk and you have to like listen to a book or something. Right. You, you, you have to do something productive. Um, so uh, and, and whenever I upload a political video, even though I keep doing it again and again and again, it's constantly like should I do this? Should I delete this? Like, should I keep doing this? Like, I, I always feel regret when I upload something political, right? Um, regret, I, really? Yeah, well, well you know, it's, it's, it's uh, maybe regret is too strong of a word, but I do think like, well, imagine if all you did, Alex, for the past year was just make arts videos. Like, what when I think like, okay, what do you want your channel to look like three years from now? What do you want to, what do you want your channel to be known for? Honestly, it's not like my political takes. Like I, I don't really care all that much. Right. Although part of me cares. Right. But um, the bigger part of me says, I want to just do arts related stuff. I want people to read my books. I want people, you know, uh, on my side for other reasons, you know, besides uh, politics, which is just so cheap and so dime a dozen uh, in this world. Yeah, that that makes sense. But um, um, so you feel like um, um, but what what's the what's the overlap then between kind of um the political stuff and the the aesthetic stuff then? If if you think that kind of mm -hmm. um aesthetics might be a, another way to get people on side or what have you, I mean, what I mean, it, it's tricky now because I think again the whole. The tricky thing with culture war stuff is that art becomes a big uh, thing for reactionaries and a big mm. kind of bellwether for people. And uh, like it's it's a thing that I've tried to point out in some of my videos now, where kind of the the notion of a cultural decline or the notion of um, arts decline is used as part of kind of some moral panic. Mm. You know, kind of like um, uh, you know, culture is trash, decadence, um, uh, you know, that sort of thing. It's it, and you know the 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 the, the rise of populism, the mm. rise of uh, fascism, and what have you. It's 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 it seems to be a moment of, um, I would say, um, uh, it's a period of resolution for the arts. I would think, right? What with what with um, uh, the amount of um, uh, political strife, the the, the whole um, um, upheaval of the COVID nineteen pandemic. And uh, I would say also the the our monoculture now mm. kind of our our culture of um, uh, sort of, uh, like a, you could call like a normcore culture mm. where where you know everybody it, uh, it, it's hard to kind of articulate if only to say that um, that it, not, nowadays I mean like a lot of kind of reactionaries talk about sort of postmodern postmodernism and sort of postmodernism's collapse of um, values and what have you, kind of mm. um, uh, sort of high and low, past and present. But I, I think it, it's 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 much more kind of the problem of um, the naturalization of the arts mm. and the fact that kind of uh, like so much of so much of our world right now is is like just so mediated and so kind of um, uh, manipulated by management and by what have you. It, it's it's very hard, I think, to sort of uh um it, it's it's very hard to kind of um it's very hard to what uh, what 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 is what does the purity of art represent in this context mm -hmm. you know what are you trying to save the art from mm -hmm. you know um uh, and and to what to what end you know it's is it um um 
is it the case that kind of art has to define its own purity, but then against what? You know, and, and I think the problem I've had with a lot of people kind of on the internet is those who say kind of um, um, art needs to be put back into the service of kind of uh, the human or kind of the um, sort of, you know, species being sort of um, um, political, uh, political insurrection and what have you. And I don't know, like, I, I don't know really whether these things are believable or not anymore. Do you know yeah. what I mean? I, yeah. I don't know. Like it's 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 it, it it does seem the believability of a certain kind of art has dropped away, but yet it seems to continue off its own accord. And I think that's that's a that's a tricky thing when you know that like almost like a zombie culture in a mm. way. Do you know what I mean? Kind of like uh, people very unthinkingly, unfeelingly do things because it's just assigned. It's just a role. It's just an academy. Mm. You know, kind of like this is what I do. I uh, you know, I'm, I'm uh, in a perfunctory way fulfilling this role. Um, almost like the content creators we have now online, where they, mm -hmm. you know, they look at themselves as quote unquote creators, you know, and not, you know, writers, journalists, what have you. It's, yeah, I, it's, I, 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 I hate that term creator. Yeah, creator it's so it's so creator. like it's yeah, especially like if it's added with the word content, it's so like gutless and so bloodless. It's so and anybody by definition then is a content creator. And it's true whether or not you're creating like great art on YouTube or if you're just pu putting out, you know, some some uh, makeup tutorials or like whatever. Right. Um, so but I mean, like when I was growing up, like the, the I guess the, the the where like my politics and the arts intersect is uh, I, I only got into politics really by way of the arts. Like so this is, a, a, I guess, how it happened. Um, we said we we're going to talk about rap. I guess we could sort of maybe like touch on that now, now, like when I was growing up, I was listening to a lot of rap uh, for the same reason, honestly, that a lot of white kids uh, grow up listening to rap, right? They sort of, especially maybe like in that time for, let's say the nineties, nineties uh, culture, right? Is so like, in some ways it's very colorful and in other ways it's very dead, right? It's this kind of like grand illusion. So many things were a grand illusion, whether it's like the, you know, the, the prosperity of the nineties was a grand uh, illusion. Uh, some of the kind of perks of globalization was, was a grand illusion, you know, uh, politically, like, you know, the new Democrats, that was a grand illusion, uh, th this idea of like some rebirth or a renewal that didn't happen. But um, a lot of kids, you know, are, are listening to rap probably because it, it, it's one of the few things, especially then, that is not just like flat out sterile. Like one of the reasons why uh, I still appreciate rap, even if um, I, I don't listen to music in general all that much anymore, uh there's this kind of like hyper competitive streak between rappers and it's considered normal. And the reason why it's considered normal is, you know, the backgrounds of many uh, rappers, uh, the stakes of masculinity are much higher, right? You have to always prove something to someone, right? Your masculinity works very different in that world than it might in other worlds. And yeah. if, if that's in fact the case, uh, you being a rapper means that you are saying something about yourself. You're saying something about your talents. And not only do you want other people to recognize this about you, you're also willing to 
defend it, right? You could either defend it by words in terms of if somebody like, I don't know, does like a, a negative album review, you might, you know, explain why that's wrong, right? Which is considered, you know, very abnormal, like in the arts, right? Normally, you're supposed to not respond to that. Or as it is between other artists, right? Between rappers, you engage in a rap battle, right? To prove actually, I am better uh, with words than you than you are. And oftentimes there's this other kind of intersection there where uh, it, it's not merely a matter of, uh, you know, whether or not you're more talented, it's, are you, you know, like a real man? Like, you know, the, 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 the thing like a few years ago with uh, Drake and Pusha T where Drake had a child with this, uh, you know, Instagram model that he was hiding from the world and push it. And, and, you know, Pusha T like, you know, he approaching this from a kind of like, you know, uh, black male perspective that's you know all about the children you know he he sees that as a failing not only of like the black community but here it's being kind of instantiated in drake right uh, a guy yeah. that is constantly rapping about um you know a needing to treat women well and so on and so forth and uh so you know these things bleed into one another but you know there's not many cultures out there that are is in the arts at least that are so kind of adamant about things like you know, there is a good and a bad and we can prove it. There's a good and a bad and I'm going to show it to you. And in an, in an audience, right, that not only cultivates this mindset, but, you know, absolutely goes for it, right? You know, you know the, the, the whole classic thing with like, you know, Eminem in the early 2000s with that, you know, eight mile movie, like, oh, you know, he's out there like proving yeah. himself, right? You don't have that kind of shit in like, you know, R&B or like just generic singing or whatever, right? Um, but, yeah. but. You know, and, and, and I, I've, you know, I, those values that I cultivated listening to rap as a kid, they carried over very, very easily into the art world where I immediately knew. I remember like when I read County Cullen's uh, poetry as a teenager, I was like, I know this is great fucking poetry and I need to figure out why I have this thought. I need to find a way to prove this. What, why is this great? When I read Kazuo Shiguru's Remains of the Day, that became immediately my favorite novel. And I was like, this is such a great novel. And I wish I had the education and the verbal uh, acuity to be able to say why. That became a kind of project. So, you know, it, it was a very easy transition. In fact, like the, the only reason I even started reading books was there was this uh, uh, album by this underground rapper, Raskaz, uh, from 1996 called Soul and Ice. And I, I was a big fan of this album, and uh, it, it, I, I learned, you know, listening to it, that the title was taken from Col uh, from Eldridge Cleaver's uh, yeah. book, Soul and Ice, from the 60s. So I was like, all right, uh, this is interesting enough for me to want to check out. I went to the library. I checked this book out. And um, it's, a, it's a first book that I read in, like, two days. Usually it would take me, like, weeks or months to finish a book. Um, and I read that book. In that. It's interesting hmm? you say that because I think about um... – um, hip hop, like nineties hip hop, um, for a moment being quite literary in sense of like, you know, there's stuff like Wu Tang Clan who would do um, mm -hmm. um, songs about that would reference you know algebra and constellations and what have you, and you know, sometimes kind of like uh, books that were uh, quite uh, you know sort of book, yeah. You know, I mean, the, the sort of stuff you get in like Black Panther libraries, mm -hmm. you know, that sort of stuff like the book of the uh, the book of the dead or what have you know, yeah. It, you could have quite a lot of esoterica in um, um, rap music, especially, you know, the yeah. influence um, comic books, you know, mm -hmm. and sort of pulp media and sort of ninja films like uh, uh, 
you know, that all these interesting cultural syntheses you know you had like um, new york rappers making music that was referencing the far east and uh, you know uh, uh, the fantastic four mm -hmm. it, it, you know, it just seemed like quite an interesting you know it's the beginning of like all the culture jamming and stuff you get in the 90s you know all mm -hmm. this quite interesting dialectical stuff happening mm -hmm. you know, east and west um past and future and what have you so um, yeah. uh, so I think that that is almost like seen as like a renaissance for rap music in a big yeah, way. Yeah, kind of, um, uh, yeah. Even though like the the music has this kind of primitive charm in its production, kind of you know the boom bap stuff mm -hmm. and uh, the, the samples. Although that itself has now a kind of a uh, uh, a kind of si it has a kind of signature sort of uh, mm -hmm. retro vibe to it, kind of with a um, uh, nostalgia, like like a, a boom bap nostalgia mm -hmm. that's back around again and periodically comes back around again. Um, but my, my first encounter with hip hop was kind of British hip hop, mm. kind of like, sort of like native kind of um, UK grime stuff. And I always made the connection in my head between sort of UK grime, which was so, sometimes called garage, between that and the garage rock that happened in the 60s, mm. you know, which, which, you know, and the beginning of punk, you know, teenagers setting up stuff out of their garages, out of their bedrooms, buying equipment they can only play three or four chords mm -hmm. and boom diy you have a, a band and mm -hmm. like now you have teenagers in these council estates i mean in britain it's council estates i'm sure you have, you know the projects in american cities and um, uh, and, uh, and and other places but it was it's council estates and high rises balladian high rises in britain mm -hmm. and that's kind of where all the grime music it's people making stuff out of their their council tenements kind of with uh you know european um, um sort of dj kits and sort of what was but, it was it good was it good or or what yeah i mean it, it is good i mean it's it's some um i think some of the early stuff and it has a kind of uh a kind of um uh uh, I mean, it, it, I mean, compared to kind of American rap music, which is kind of much more kind of sartorial, I think mm -hmm. sometimes it is. Uh, I think British um, rap music is is much more kind of musical and much more almost kind of like um, <laughs> kind of like the, like theatrical. It's mm -hmm. it's very odd. I can almost call it like kabuki. Grime mm -hmm. is like very kind of like very exaggerated voices and stuff like that. But the big problem I always had with with kind of grime and with American hip hop was kind of I mean um, you know it's it's a popular kind of very masculine thing. But that comes with its good and its bad things. It's it's yeah. also paradoxically rap music is a bundle of the music of, of racists and idiots mm -hmm. and, and um, uh, you know what have you same with rock music and metal you know so like mm -hmm. there's all these like innovative things that can happen then but it starts to become representative of the kind of norm culture we're, we're talking about and um uh, and and so kind of, same thing with reggae you know mm -hmm. like there's always been reggae that i've listened to and then um or, or even happy hardcore music you know i, I listen to so but then i meet people on public transport who are like just did, did, did you listen to bunny whaler growing up listen to any what bunny whaler Bunny Boiler, I think it rings a bell. Bunny sure. Weller, uh, yeah, like you know, I, I I grew up like also like with a little bit of a reggae, I guess. But you know, it's <laughs> it's it's interesting because um, you know, uh, everything that we're talking about, I I think it's true. Uh, at the same time, like uh, I guess the irony is that uh, a, a lot of what you mentioned as as positives eventually led uh, for me, you know, with my kind of like this disillusionment with like a lot of, if not most rap, even stuff that I was, you know, really big on growing up. Like, for example, like you're mentioning, um, you know, uh, the fact that it's very uh, special out of 90s rap is very literate. It's making all these yeah. kind of, you know, esoteric references. 
but at a certain point, you know, uh, one of the one of the biggest shortcomings of rap as a genre is yeah. it's 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 so reflexive, right? It's so self-referential yeah. and it's so dependent on a very kind of limited mm. repertoire of yeah. things that, you know, on the one hand, uh, lots of stuff becomes very dated very quickly. A lot of these references um, don't, don't you, you know, find as well the kind of that repertory of sort of um, um, stuff it gets turned into things like we have nowadays, like you know Kendrick Lamar and the that musical, um, uh, the one about Alexander Hamilton. Uh, oh yeah, Hamilton. the yeah, yeah. the you know Lin I mean? Miranda. Yeah, yeah. You listen to like you listen to like albums by Kendrick Lamar, and it, and it just seems so un unbearably sincere and yeah, it wears yeah, its heart yeah. on its sleeves and it's so quiet yeah. it's, you know the biograph confessional kind yeah. of like i survived the hood now i have survivor's guilt ah yeah. like, like yeah. all these faithful samples and, 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 th th and that's that's that's, that's why yeah yeah Tupac. yeah you know it's yeah. just so it, it could be a parody you yeah. know it's yeah and, and, and you know, th that's what that's why i still kind of like it's odd but uh you know, I at this point now, I tend to prefer like some like 90s gangster rap that's like maybe a little bit, I, I don't want to say like less literate because like, even with gangster rap, I would prefer something that's more literate. But there's less of that kind of, you know, there might be a, a posturing of a certain kind going on, but it's less of that kind of, you know, really woke consciousness posturing right like when conscious rap became like this big thing in like the the mid to late 2000s that's kind of when it reached you know a lot of its kind of um uh uh well i don't want to say apex because it, it didn't reach its kind of like critical literary heights or anything but it reached its apex in terms of like you know the 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 public imagination right and um you know rap being so kind of a self-referential so reflexive uh, it, you know, when I, so like when I read Saul and Ice and, uh, you know, the book, uh, and, you know, I, I just kept like a notebook for writing down words and writing down concepts, names, events that I didn't know, which was like most of the stuff being mentioned by Eldridge Cleaver. And little by little, I would fill out these books and I continued, you know, with that habit for a, a few years, just, you know, anything I'd come across that I didn't know, I would look it up. And very quickly, you know, that led me to literature, right, more broadly, that led me to so many other things. And I guess because I, I became so kind of infatuated with, with reading, I just didn't have time to listen to music. And uh, after reading like a ton of like great poetry and then like discovering Cosmoetica or whatever, you go back to a lot of, you know, 90s rap and, you know, I'm sorry, like the fact that it's so dependent on itself and it's so reflexive, it is a limitation that is self-imposed in rap, right? So a lot of it just starts to not really stack up against the best literature, right? Which I guess, you know, it's not rap's fault. I mean, you, you can't expect music to stack up against the best, best literature because literature is literature, music is, is music, right? They do different things and they could do different things well, but uh, because rap, you know, some of the best rap tends to be so self-consciously, you know, I wish to be literate, I wish to be talented, I wish to be poetic, that 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 becomes its own trap because then yeah, you're sort of there are, there are, there are yeah. rappers in the UK like that for sure. I mean, yeah. uh, rappers in America like Immortal Technique uh, as well, like mm -hmm. just the overbearing preachiness as well of the music. Where kind of like you'll listen to songs by them and you'll be like, oh, you know, not non-political, non-political moral technique is at his best when he's just doing like you know really kind of 
grimy type of shit sexist and that's the thing like some of his best mu uh, music is his like most sexist music right because if, if you can't stomach the political stuff because it's too preachy or you can't stomach the more kind of self-consciously literate stuff because it, it wants to be poetry too much and it's not then what you have yeah. left is you have some of that hyper masculine posturing which I mean, it can be done in a way that's witty. It can be done in a way that's well, that that's good. But it's also, again, it's it's also very limiting, right? Some of the best, you know, gangster rap is yeah. is rap that is very kind of high on its own self destructiveness, right? And and that kind of irony there, like really I, really I totally, works. I totally agree. I, I love kind of um, um, you know three six mafia kind of stuff, almost like Grand Guignol kind of rap with all the you know like a, or someone like um, mm -hmm. um big lurch i did it to you you know these kind of like mm -hmm. very dracula kind of songs mm -hmm. um i i think that but you know it, it's tough it's tough to kind of do the tongue-in-cheek but also kind of serious you know um speculative kind of lyrics you have to walk a delicate line you have to have a good sense of irony you have to have a clever kind of narrative voice you know like uh, someone like serge gansberg could do these sort of things you know, because, uh, you know, in, in his songs, there was often kind of a, an unreliable narrator or the, or the songs didn't ask you to, you know, the songs were quite at home with having a dubious morality or a du mm -hmm. and you, you kind of you just accept that. Um, I think with other people, it's it's a bit more tricky, you know, like, mm -hmm. like with Immortal Technique, where, you know, I think, you know, sometimes you know, he, he, he um, um, it, it, it gets turned into a bit of a pose and it becomes, it sort of defeats any underlying political sort of force or message that's supposed to have. Um, which is to say, actually, I mean, I don't actually agree with many of his political um, ideas, but it, but certainly like like a song like um, Dance with the Devil, and all that, although that's become a meme kind of in the last few years, but kind mm. of a, I react to videos of shocking rap lyrics, you know, that sort yeah. of shit. Um, yeah. I mean, that's a clever sort of thing where kind of at the end, there's a kind of Gil Martin-esque sort of device where he turns to the where he turns to the listener and he sort of speaks to them directly and there's like there, there seems to be a kind of um Robert Browning my last duchess thing going on where it, mm -hmm. it seems quite clever you know um uh, but you don't get that in a lot of hip-hop and you don't yeah. even get that a lot from sometimes sometimes from the same artists so like like hip-hop can't really get out from under its own folk traditions in mm -hmm. a hard way and yeah. that could be because it's a young um thing uh, but i think it's also you know it's a victim of kind of the internet yeah. and the fact that kind of hip-hop used to be very localized and very um, uh, mm -hmm. about kind of you know lyrics made references to very particular local things uh, which is why i mean you get rap in france now where people where you know no one listens to it outside mm -hmm. of that particular um like like Toulouse, you know, because mm. it's so because it, even the lyrics are so specific to people living in mm. Toulouse, you know. But, but now, like in our global culture, you know, people are making rap in Britain, which sounds like rap from Nashville. People mm. are making rap in, and, and that's in, very very specific to rap, right? The, the yeah. fact that it's so referential to like its cities, right? Its neighborhoods, you know. I, I used to love like you know, uh, I I had to spend a few years in New Jersey. Uh, away from from New York City, and I remember like listening to like New York City rap, and you know references to like you know things that I knew about, you know streets that I would be on, you know mm -hmm. stuff that anyone outside of like my locale, right? They they wouldn't yeah. know what what it's about, yeah. um, and that's very very specific to rap, right? Like if you have like you know a southern rap, like they're talking about very specific kind of things. 
Um, and you know, like it, they, it, they cross over though in, in a way, kind of like yeah. kind of the dia- the, um, the the idiomect and the dialect of, of certain things cross over. I mean, now pe- I hear people in uh, England using Americanisms that are quite clearly taken from the mm. rap music they listen to, and um, and, and what have you. Uh, and but I mean, that goes beyond kind of the whole thing. I mean, culture is costume. I mean, even in, in the sixties the Rolling Stones. I mean, Mick Jagger is basically doing his best impression of a black gay man from the South, you know, mm-hmm. like, uh, it's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's a, to- he's, he's acting like Howlin' Wolf, mm-hmm. you know, and this is a guy from the East End of London. Yeah, and that, that yeah. translates, you know, in a big, and this is happening all the time, I think, which is why kind of um, the idea, of, for, for me, the idea of culture war, the culture war, cultural appropriation thing is a total red herring. You know, it goes yeah. on all the time anyway. Yeah, it, it's like, it's, like what, what, I mean, like, what is this? Like, like the fact is like functionally, no one can even really define what that is going to look like. I mean, if cultural appropriation has has become even like you, you cannot make like dishes and put it put them all on YouTube from the culture that you're that you weren't born into, like it's just insane, right? What are you supposed yeah. to do? You're not supposed to. Uh, there was like this one thing where like some someone like wrote in into some kind of advice column about like uh, uh, his kid learning Spanish in school and how offensive he found this mm-hmm. and, and how he was insisting like. You, you cannot speak Spanish anywhere outside of school, right? If you have to do it in class, go ahead, but I will not have you speaking. And like, this is, you know, <laughs> this, is this is like, you know, the exact opposite of cultural respect, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, like, uh, like and, and, you know, like ultimately, you know, I, I have some ideas about like books in the future. Like I, I definitely want to write like some kind of like big rap novel, right? Uh, from the pers- rap it like, like your eight mile. Well, for, like from the, from the perspective of one of these, regionally famous locally famous rappers right that you know like for many for many uh of these types of people it's like the extent of their world becomes the regional fame right or it becomes like you know uh their their concerts right and i it makes me wonder like imagine putting a person like that uh that is you know uh has lots of positive qualities right is you know is literate is intelligent and yet you know, imagine kind of like um, a, 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 an ever escalating, you know, set of uh, absurd situations that this person has to deal with, right? Mm-hmm. And it's going to be written from the perspective of a black person. Of course, I'm going to use dirty language that white people aren't supposed to use. But I mean, the way that I think about it is like this: I'm, if fascinated, so- by, I'm fascinated by white rappers. I'm fascinated. Yeah. I mean, like the, the whole the whole concept of whiteness in hip hop is, is fascinating to me. Uh, and um, what, 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 what do you think about uh, uh, Eminem? Because I also have like ideas about that. Like it's <laughs> it's just very it's just like a lot of you know like h- how race intersects with rap. Like it's it's very interesting, especially whiteness, right? Um, I, I often think of, of Eminem as uh, bloated. Do you yeah. know what I mean? I think he's kind of this this sort of bloated um, sort of. Um, because he's one of these people like Madonna, isn't he? He's like mm-hmm. this iconic, this iconic yeah. figure who kind of, for some, somehow, some, somewhere, not what we're not quite sure, he became canonical. You know, no one's opinion can touch him, even mm-hmm. after he puts out these disastrous albums. Like, um, uh, he kind of lamely kind of like goes, well, I'm, a, you know, I'm Eminem. That's, that's, mm-hmm. that's good enough for me. Everyone goes, yeah. oh, well, he's Eminem, I suppose. Yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? Iconic status, fucking hell. Yeah. Um, that means you don't have to try yeah, anymore. Yeah. I, I, I think the most telling thing about this, like recently that I came across was I was walking around my neighborhood and uh, um, I, I don't see white people that often, uh, at least some of the streets that I take my walks on. 
Uh, and I saw like, it's just so weird, right? How, okay, so the first white person in that area that I saw in a while happened to be this guy who's probably around my age, honestly, uh, definitely white, had like this big beard, had like a hoodie on. And the reason why I saw him is because uh, he had his phone out and from his phone, he had as loud as possible that Eminem song, The Way I Am. And it's <laughs> oh, like, fuck. this is so like, okay, so so first of all, like, you know, th that song specifically, it's like when you listen to it now, um, you know, it's it's terrible production, right? Like that's like the first song that Eminem produced. And it's so it's so like exactly what you expect from like the very late 90s or early 2000s, like this extremely repetitive sort of beat that it's supposed to be like foreboding, but it just sounds cheap and nasty. Um, and the lyrics I just, are I just don't like the way that, that there are some artists whose entire career has just been sounding aggressive for really no reason. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. And, <laughs> and exactly, and in that song, like all he's doing is He's just fucking like, what is he complaining about? He's complaining about, you know, okay, so you have, he's on a record label and they're putting pressure on him to like outdo the sales of his last single or whatever. He's complaining about being, you know, like accosted by fans everywhere that he goes. He's like screaming about this. And it's so like, it, you know, I think uh, calling him a Don in that sense is kind of pressure, right? Because, you know, mm. you are acting, you know, like one of these like prima donna uh, sing singers. Yeah. Um, and it's, and you know, like the fact that, and okay, so the fact that this white guy was walking down the street, looking the way that he looked, honestly, looking the way that I looked when I was 13, when I was 14, when I was 15, right? I had, you know, I had cut up eyebrows. I, I had pierced ears. I mean, still do. I just don't wear earrings anymore. Um, I had a mohawk when I was, was 16. Oh. So, I'm, I'm so you know, we, we're like dipping into like, you know, the identity subcultures and, and, you know, he's blasting the song, this, this guy, like my age now, he probably grew up with the song just like I did, but he probably never got over it emotionally, right? He's still, he's walking down the street. He wants everybody to hear the song. He wants to be seen in this kind of light. And he probably has the same kind of set of complaints with the same kind of equally low stakes, right? Um, and, and you know, like I, I recently re-listened to, uh, some of his like early like classic albums like if you look at you know the reviews for something like the Slim Shady LP or the Marshall Mathers LP they're supposed to be classics and I think there's some good songs on Marshall Mathers LP but listening to that first album it's just so bad there's almost no good song and even the songs that are I guess kind of good in the kind of pop sense of the word good uh you know, it's 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 just very cheap, right? The lyrics are just really bad most of the time, right? Something never something never clicked with me with with Eminem. Yeah, like even even I, I've all, I've all, it, even it, growing it, up, I kept them at an arm's length for whatever it, reason. It wasn't even a kind of reflexive, like oh, that's pop, that's commercial. Yeah, because you know, I would listen to like the Black Eyed Peas, like something like uh, "Shut Up" is a really good kind of like a, a banger, you know, like a, a catchy pop song. But Eminem, it always just seemed kind of like. Um, Again, it was kind of the, the 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 aggressiveness, the anger that kind of, kind of. I mean, you know, nowadays you see these suburban teenagers, you know, black, white, what have you. But mm -hmm. you know, they're 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 about sixteen, seven years old, and they're making these songs, which are just a blasted out bass, and like every mm -hmm. other word is fuck. And it's like, this is just because your mum sent you to your fucking room. You know, yeah, what exactly. Yeah, like why are you angry? Just mm -hmm. like. Like what like what it, it's almost it just become because well the answer is because that's what hip-hop is now it's you know it's just kind of like it, it's become that kind of you know default thing where it's just like 
that's the songs where you get aggressive and you start to like talk about you know, how many how, how people don't want to fuck with you and it's like you know, who lives yeah. like that if we all lived like that it would just be like fucking carnage mm. <laughs> you know and, 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 and not to take too much away from from Eminem, I think in general uh, he hasn't been uh, uh, artistically successful, you know, as a rapper. Though obviously, you know, hugely uh, commercially successful and very influential. But I mean, he has legitimately good songs. Um, you know, songs like "Stan," even a song like you know, like like "White America." I mean, he he's saying things about uh, uh, he, he's saying things about racial uh, uh, politics with small p politics. That you know, most people don't you know in rap, and especially you know, like black rappers uh, wouldn't yeah. have said in the way that he said, right? So, so it, it's good to have these kinds of you know perspectives from you know so-called you know I don't want to call them outsiders because I mean, what are we talking about? Are you an outsider to hip hop because you're not yeah, black, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, um, you know, you're an outsider perhaps in other ways as well. But um, you know, I don't want to take too much away from him, but I I, I think he's an interesting case in point in that. Uh, you know, perhaps what he's most remembered for is not necessarily the stuff that's that's his best. I and... link him in my I link him in my head not so much with rap, but with kind of like Marilyn Manson. Do you know what I mean? Kind of that cultural moment of yeah, like yeah. Um, uh, sort of new metal in a way, kind yeah. of like uh, the, the, yeah. the you know the white guys with cornrows and that sort of mm, stuff, yeah. uh, sort of scatting over metal. Like and, and, and also it's like intentions like 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 what is it like what was it trying to do because like in white america eminem has this uh uh set of lines that i think is like very spot on right he, he he's saying that you know all these white kids are listening to him uh for no discernible reason right he calls it this anger that sprays and sprays you know in every direction in no direction right it's it's not uh and and, and like when you think about it like the kind of like political, you know, against small p political stuff that he was involved in. I mean, what, what was it in the late nineties and early two thousands? It was Congress is trying to censor my music, right? It's, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. We, we can't say the shit that we want to say on TV. You know, uh, we can't say uh, curse words. We can't use, yeah, uh, we can't use slurs. Yeah the, the, yeah, the satanic panics from, from the 80s, even into the 2000s, right? You know, like, oh my God. The, 90s, the satanic panic yeah. and the, um, uh, and you know, what what else was there? The Columbine two, yeah, uh, Doom, right? Like all like yeah, games yeah, like yeah. Doom, right? Intersecting with all that, um, yeah, yeah, and, like, uh, natural born killers, yeah, all that stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of the whole anxiety, the moral panic, and mm -hmm. all that sort of stuff. And that's nothing new, in yeah. a way. It really kind of we, we maybe it is symptom symptomatic of symptomic of modernism, but it's certainly nothing new. As far as we're concerned, I think. I mean, mm. like when you were mentioning, um, um, you know, rap turning you onto literature in different ways, that reminded me of, um, well, musical influences from my childhood too. Um, bands like Marky Smith's The Four, which are a sort mm. of Northern England um, rock band, very literary, very good, very esoteric, but also people like David Bowie, you know, um, uh, and and his numerous references to literature, but also his collaboration with different people. Um, throughout his career, who, who themselves were kind of very interesting, and um, uh, you know, the way it dovetails, he almost becomes like a signpost for different cultural things, and he's very much using his stardom to do that. You know, well, at the beginning of his career, anyhow, mm -hmm. kind of like those first, those first chameleonic stages of his career, but yeah, and, and then this this problem of his attraction and repulsion to america you know at certain points his career becomes very americanized he rejects mm -hmm. it he returns to it so so that that, that whole thing was was very 
formative for me as a child because like I, I got turned on to like stuff like Jean Genet and Burroughs and um, uh, you know Brian Eno and mm. people like that all through David Bowie and also stuff like um, um, uh, I, I believe um, who, who's the chap who also wrote the the, the younger Tormes. Um, um, is well, that is that is that a German phrase you just no, said? No, is, is it Christopher Isherwood and people like that and uh, oh. this, like authors like that? These Yukio Mishima. These are people who all referencing okay. David Bowie's like um, lyrics. You know, so that that became um, quite quite informative in that way. And you know, you know I'm uh, so so from from a very young age, I kind of had this idea of the arts as being quite incestuous in that way, mm -hmm. kind of like um in the way that different things could turn you on to other things and how the limit of one medium could open up the space of possibility for another mm. where you know you know songs about paintings paintings about um, ideas that are from literature mm. or from what have you it, it, uh, so that's why from very young age kind of i was um, when i was very young i wanted to be an author and i wanted to illustrate my own novels which mm -hmm. is charming but um, mm -hmm. i saw you know I, I very much saw them as having some kind of um some kind of really you know i didn't you know I, I liked the idea of multimedia dabbling in different things mm. and seeing crossovers between them i mean like do, do you probably have the sense of that too then kind of like i'm uh, coming out of like what you were listening to and then go reading other things through that yeah uh, yeah i mean uh, j just in general like i always imagined uh, i mean i started with poetry right i mean I, I wrote a bunch of poetry in fact uh it's going to be more relevant a little bit later in this conversation but I, i've started to write poetry again recently um you know uh, working on a uh, on a new uh, novel now uh yeah. i have plans uh, right after that for a, a book of short stories um i i was really actually into drawing uh, as a kid uh, I, I was actually very good at it when i was you know, maybe uh, 10, 11, 12. And that's more or less the time that I, that I stopped. And then when I discovered writing, I was like, this is, you know, this is exactly what, what, what I want to do. But I, I, I always imagine, you know, like with, with books that you do, like you, you always have to do things differently. Right. Because I mean, when I was growing up and uh, I mean, I'm, I'm still this way now, um, I didn't have like that many close friends. I don't really like leaving my house all that much. Right. I just, you know, I just mostly like being by myself. I need a lot of solitude. Uh, uh, if I, you know, if I interact with someone, even this kind of conversation, right, I'm going to have to be, you know, after like a few hours of this, I'm going to have to be very silent tomorrow, right? I can't have people <laughs> talking to me. I can't, I'm not going to be answering emails and shit. I'm going to be, you know, I'm, uh, I'm just going to be, uh, you know, doing other things and recharging, reading, whatever. Um, and, you know, uh, uh, but if you're in that mindset and you're doing a lot of reading, and you want to be like an artist of some sort, you start thinking, you know, my peers are not the peers of other people. It's true that I don't have, you know, for example, that many friends, but I could have my peers to be Eldridge Cleaver. You know, what if I could do a political book better than he did? You know, I'm reading County Cullen. That is my peer. I have to be able to excel some poetry like this, mm -hmm. right? Um, I, 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 I have people that I could look up to. I have people that I could take stuff from. And I have people that I could potentially excel in some way, right? Um, and I, I think that's a, a kind of healthy approach because you're not localizing your interactions like wherever that you are. Right, you're not um, limiting yourself to whatever your uh, circumstances are. Uh, you are kind of always working at, at the highest level that you can, and and if that's your perspective, especially now, like you know, like growing up in the '90s or whatever, you're gonna have some sort of like multimedia kind of angle 
in your brain kind of like already built in, right? You always want to try to do different kinds of things again and again. Um, and, you know, th this is, I guess, true in general, like to anybody born in the uh, 20th or 21st centuries. Yeah, uh, I, I am, um, when you, you mentioned, um, um, I, I do want to bring, because at the very beginning we were talking about, or we alluded to the like um, political art and kind of um, sort of um, arts relation to politics and what have mm. you. You said I'm a political book. I mean, um, like, do do you think there is such a thing, uh, or, or you know, as a as an apolitical art? Then, or do you think I'm a, or do you think um, I mean, what what at what level does the politics kind of interact with the art? Well, uh, I mean, you, you you in their in their emails, uh, you said something like, um, you know, the opening line. Maybe that could be like the controlling metaphor for the conversation, right? It was something like yeah. arts freedoms versus society's freedoms, or put another way, uh, mm. art for art's sake, yeah. and what that might mean politically, right? Because it's true that if yeah. you say art for art's sake, there might still be some sort of, uh, if that's not a political comment in and of itself, it's still going to have some sort of relationship to politics, yeah. even if it's not in that kind of crass, you know, blovi bloviating way that is typically thought of as, you know, all art is political, right? Yeah. Um, and, um, well, so first of all, like art for art's sake, right? I guess it depends on how that word art is defined and what you really mean by for its own sake, right? Because, um, I mean, I, I, I was, uh, before this conversation, I was looking at some paintings by uh, Odd uh, Nerdrum, that, that Norwegian <laughs> painter, and I mean, look, I, I think he has some good paintings, but he definitely has a bunch of paintings that are, you could, you could theoretically say, okay, this is an example of art for art's sake. You have like two people, two creatures, humanoid types, let's say, coming out of the water, right, with this kind of like fantastical background, and one shoots the other. Um, maybe I need to spend a little more time with, with this painting, but when I just saw it, I quickly glanced at it, it struck me as, okay, so this is an example of something that someone could say is art for art's sake, meaning it's almost purely decorative. It's kind of kitschy in the sense that uh, people could easily say, oh, you know, I like this, or, right? I could enjoy that. Um, I could get something very superficial out of it, right? Maybe perhaps even hanging up on my wall or something like that. But if you're saying that is an example of art for art's sake, it, it, it's only that by like pure inflation, right? You're really inflating things unnecessarily, right? Because I mean, it, it's 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 still decorative, you know what I mean? Um, and uh, the, the other part is, uh, you know, art, art may comment on politics directly or might not. Uh, the way that I view it is, that's just kind of an aesthetic position that someone takes. Perhaps it's even a moral position that someone takes, but, it's not something that is necessarily preferred or not preferred in a work of art, right? Uh, having politics or not having politics in art, it's not going to detract from potential greatness or the, or the, the lack of it, right? Um, so that's just kind of the, the ways that I would start breaking apart that question. Yeah, I, I think, I think those, that, those, those seem um, apt, uh, apt um um because you know it i i feel also kind of um slightly slightly agnostic about this term sort of art for art's own sake because i mean does that does that mean sort of does that mean sort of the arts 
freedom or the art self-definition i mean what mm. what necessarily is is the art i mean i suppose i suppose it's a whole teamology isn't it mm-hmm. if you think art for its own sake then you, you have it that involves some kind of some kind of um well of first of all i mean i think um like when when we talk about art for art's sake, I th- when I say we, I mean you and me and everyone else who who will say art for art's sake today. They're really meaning it in a Trotskyist way. They certainly mm. not don't mean it in um, a Ruskinian way or anything like that. Uh, I think Trotsky. How, how how would you differentiate those two? Like uh, well, uh, Ruskin is is much more of a Kantian in the, in this sense. He he thinks that. You know, he, he gives lip service to the idea of art for art's sake, but he still believes that art should, in a way, be... be um, um, like a moralizing force in some, like, it's, distant... It's, it's, like, right. like, beauty should be a symbol for life, some yeah, ethical yeah. symbol like that. Yeah. Where, whereas Trotsky... Um, well, for, well, for one thing, Trotsky... Um, uh, I, I think it's in that moment between Trotsky and Stalin that you really get kind of the, the birth of modern art for art's sake, where... Um, I, I have some notes actually to this to this effect, um, and it's it's all kind of um, a, a, the big the big problem of um, um, well, uh, for, for well okay here for, for instance Trotsky says that art is a protest against reality. Um, he says that um, um, that art is the most uh, sensitive part of culture, it's the most sensitive and complex part of culture, mm-hmm. and that it suffers the most from the decline and the decay of bourgeois society. So mm-hmm. in that way, uh, cultural decline and uh, political strife and upheaval, I mean, these are the larger contexts for art. And although, so, so there's this idea that art is a high culture, but that, you know, it, it's at some level, it, it, there, there is a connection between its freedom, its um, um, uh, freedom and political freedom, sort of social freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a paradox here. Um, uh, and, and it is that, you know, um, it, it, it is this idea of kind of form and content, this idea of style versus politics, right? Uh, uh, so um, Trotsky also says that, um, um, so he says that art is an important part of kind of helping the, in the struggle for the freedom of oppressed classes and that sort of um, a politically conscious and historically conscious art can help to scatter what he calls the skepticism and pessimism of mankind. But, um, uh, he says also in this slightly paradoxical way, art can become a strong ally of the revolution only insofar as it remains faithful to itself. So this somehow implies that in, in a way, kind of all the politics follows on from some mm. sort of formal aesthetic foundational basis. And this is also mirrored in what Walter Benjamin says when he says, when he makes a differentiation between artistic qualities and political tendencies. And he went so far as to assert that art could not be of the correct political tendency or, or incorrect or otherwise if it failed to have formal aesthetic quality. Such mm. quality was educative in value. It demonstrated and educated the potential transformation of the aesthetic form itself for the both viewer and producer. And, and this, this is where the fissure begins between Trotsky and the Russian formalists and Stalin, where mm. sort of the formalists are microscopically obsessed with design and etiquette and and, um, um, and uh, shall we say um, with uh, 
with um, technique to the exclusion of lots of other contingencies. And Trotsky, Trotsky criticized the formalists and he said, um, the methods of formal analysis are necessary but insufficient because they neglect the social world with which the human beings who write and read literature are bound up in. And, um, and so the whole question becomes, oh God, how does formalism square up with real life? Um, what, you know, uh, if you're looking at things through a microscope, perhaps you lose the context of um, uh, society and what have you. So, so yeah, there's this struggle that Trotsky is in with kind of the whole legacy of Kant and Hegel here, where there's this whole question kind of whether art can resolve the ills of society or society's um, ills through art or society or vice versa, you know. Um, uh, but but so, so, I mean, and that's the whole conundrum right there as well. I mean, and Greenbergian formalism comes out of that. Um, but then in the whole process, in the last uh, 50 years, we've had a whole period where we've become disenchanted with Greenbergian formalism. Mm. It looks like just another form of American imperialism, just another form of capitalism. And, and, and now kind of we've gone back to square one, where we're sort of almost back to this point again, where, yeah. where we have these ideas where we're squaring up form versus content, style versus politics. Um, Mao actually talks about this, and this is his little red book. Um, Mao um, talks about, um, let me see here, he talks about this in terms of the struggle on two fronts. Um, that's, that's his work, and he, and he said, quote, and he seems to be more in Trotsky's position here, but ultimately we know he gives into a Stalinist sort of, um, mm. uh, he says, works of art which lack artistic quality have no force, however progressive they are politically. Oh, that's just an interesting thing for Mao to say. Uh, says, therefore, we oppose works of art with wrong political viewpoints, but with no artistic qualities. But what do we see happen with um, Mao? It's the same thing that happens with Stalin. The tendency becomes towards a poster and slogan style, correct in political viewpoint, lacking in artistic power. And, you know, um, and, and even, even there, this is, this is a sort of a strange schema to think in. Even now, when we think in this, in this formulation of politics and content stuff, we come into some problems, don't we? Because we'd have, uh, if we just run through it, if we think, you know, what are works of art which are poor stylistically but full of bad politics? What are the examples that come to mind? Yeah, that, that's that's sort of what I would uh, talk about. We should get to Greenberg right after this. There's the, what what are also the works of art which are poor stylistically but contain good politics, you know, or works of art which are mm -hmm. rich stylistically but full of evil politics, unprogressive mm -hmm. politics. You know, one might talk about Wagner, or, or you know, but we could argue, you know, works of art also which are rich stylistically but embrace progressive politics who are those guys yeah um and, and this is just the thing mal doesn't talk about this he doesn't try to systematize this but who are these people you know we could talk about john cage although he was just an anarchist or, or something you know something like that you know it's it's um it's but sorry you were going to talk about um greenberg oh well we should just get to greenberg after after this uh response because uh, this isn't necessarily uh having to do the greenberg but I mean, so, you know, the question of, uh, you know, is there this uh, tension between formalism in writing and formalism in critique versus mm -hmm. like social comment? I mean, like when I think about just like great books, uh, you know, Kazuo Guru's Remains of the Day, that yeah. has social commentary. A lot of it is wrapped up in, you see the interactions between um, uh, uh, I think his name is Mr. Stevens and mm -hmm. I, I forget her, uh, Miss Kelton, I think her name is, um, 
you, you see their kind of interactions and sub interactions. You see the fact that Stevens has kind of like dismissed so much of his emotional life to become a great butler. Uh, yeah. th th that, that is, you know, uh, a, a social comment. That is a small p political comment. A lot of that commentary is sort of spot on, I guess, about, about the way that people live their lives. There's also an undercurrent of, you know, commentary about fascism. I mean, it's set during uh, uh, the rise of, of Hitler, for example. Um, and, you know, uh, 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 let's say books by a Nazi. So uh, Newt Hansen is a, you know, is a novelist. Uh, he has some pretty good novels. I think his best book is uh, The Growth of the Soil. Now, this is a Nazi, but you can't really find, you know, like to the extent that you could find Nazi politics and growth of the soil, those Nazi politics are more kind of like in that spiritual aspect of, you know, how like, you know, Nazism uh, tries to sort of do its own kind of myth making, right? Uh, the first man, the powerful man, you know, the, 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 the Germanic man, uh, the man that the man of culture that sort of uh, comes along and disciplines everything and everyone. Um, and in growth of the soil, right? You have this kind of uh, man that comes out of nowhere. He decides to build a house on this land. This woman comes out of nowhere as if it's kind of, you know, predetermined, as if it's predestined. She joins him simply because he is a man and he shows himself to be a man that is perhaps worthwhile in some ways, a hard worker. She comes mm -hmm. along and she kind of fulfills his destiny. I could definitely see, you know, different strains of like Nazi culture taking certain lessons away from that in the same way that you could take Nietzsche like into Nazi mm -hmm. culture, but there is no overt Nazi comment. Now, yeah. can I think of like a Nazi, like a true like Nazi politics novel that is also a great book? I mm -hmm. guess, but it, it, it's generally not going to be a problem that human beings have to deal with. Because, you know, uh, the, the, if you think of like, you know, the greatest possible artists, right? I, I think it's sort of telling that Dan on the one hand is as great, Dan Schneider, for anybody that, that doesn't know who we're talking about, of Cosmoetica. Uh, it's, it's kind of telling that Dan Schneider is on the one hand a, a great artist that has like a, a, a really great work ethic. And also in his personal life, um, you know, he's al he's always been kind of, you know, uh, 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 you know, like a, a stand stand up man, right? The 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 line that uh, he always gets made fun of for is uh, not only like it was a, a line that was, I guess, referencing himself. It was something like, not only was he a great artist, he was also a great man. Um, at a certain point, if you are pa pathological. Right. And pathological enough to become obsessed with something like Nazi ideology that will probably interfere with your artwork. I know that that's kind of like a, a crass way of putting it. It's imperfect because, of course, we're going to have exceptions. Uh, Birth of a Nation is a, is a great film. And yet it is arguing for, you know, uh, uh, lots of, uh, you know, negative things. Um, but you generally don't have that all that much. And when it comes to just great writing in general, great art, there's always something going on psychologically. There's always some sort of comment on just like, even if we start from the assumption that great novel writing has to start somewhere with characterization, right? The building up of characters, like forget world building for a second. Why don't you build the character first and, you know, the world that he's either, you know, uh, uh, jutting up against or, you know, the world that is implied by a person in this character. You need to start with that first. But by doing that, 
you're going to have to reveal so much about human behavior and interaction and give so much to readers that in some ways it is a little bit, I guess, of a political comment, but not in that, not, not in the, you know, capital P way, right? It's just, it's so, you know, I, I don't think on some level you could truly divorce that. And also on another level, like, you know, I, I, I'm always kind of resistant about this idea of like, you know, morality in, in art, right? Like ethics in art, right? Because that's always a slippery slope. But the more that I read, you know, people like Nietzsche, I definitely see a place for ethics and art, but not in the kind of typical way. When Nietzsche says something like, I want a morality that is not based on forbidding you to do anything, but, yeah. but a morality that goads you to act, to do yeah. one thing that you're best at, that you're great at, and do it again and again and again from morning till night until you dream of it when you sleep. Um, that is a perfect encapsulation for how a great artist needs to approach their craft, right? Uh, and there is, a, you know, there is a kind of ought implied there. If you're a great artist, you ought to be out there making great art, right? You shouldn't be doing something else, especially if that something else is subpar, right? If you're you know, a mediocre jo journalist versus a great novelist, you have to be that great novelist. So there is this kind of ought and there is this kind of, you know, I guess more kind of like a meta ethics that finds itself, right, in art. If you really think about it, even if you want to resist the most kind of, you know, asinine versions of these arguments. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think, I think aesthetics must have something to do with ethics, ethics, because it involves making judgments, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I think so often kind of the way we think about ethics and art is about what the art must literally propose, what it literally yeah. represents. I, I think this is a very crass and often dilettantish way to look at art, mm -hmm. you know, what, what the art condones. And I think it is representative of people who, like, like we were talking, like, well, you we were just referencing kind of Nietzsche and kind of his, his, um, his idea of sort of, um, you, you know, um, a bit basically Nietzsche is pro alterity in a big way I mean he is he is not for inhibition in any way and as, as opposed to Kantianism which is all about inhibition and anti anti alterity managing alterity um I I think the the thing the thing with um politics and with art is that you know because and we touched on like the idea of sort of a CCP Maoist Stalinist art um the the posters and the slogans mm -hmm. you know in, in what way is that politics you know what what does that do politically very often it doesn't do anything it just flatters the ruling mm -hmm. party and it's a form of um chic it's a form of radical chic for yeah. the party um in, in their society it's another consumer it's another consumer item mm -hmm. it's uh, it, it, it certainly means nothing in a post-revolutionary society it can account for the unique problems that our society and art faces today so you know i think very often like the, the real subversive political content isn't in a slogan kind of in, in a painting or what have you it's it's often encoded you know what, whatever that might mean it's it's not it's not going to be um like that it's not going to be as pretentiously sort of um displayed like that but but also the fact that art it's much harder to gain what the politics of the artworks are than, say, the politics of the artist. You know, an artist might be evil, but is his art mm -hmm. evil? You know, an artist might be a rabid misogynist, but are his paintings misogynist? Mm -hmm. You know, this is the, you know, this is the, the, the thing. You know, in what, in what way does kind of our biases and um, um, uh, our pathological 
um, our, our pathological biases, our discriminations make their way into our art. And then what does the art do to them? Because we've seen all kinds of um, um, Puritan, um, anti-modernistic people create quite startling works of modern art, mm. you know, um, Cezanne, for instance, a very backwards kind of guy, um, H.P. Lovecraft even, the accidental modernists who think they're neoclassicists, mm. you know, it, it's very interesting there, kind of the schizophrenic quality, yeah. it's not intentional mm -hmm. all the time, and this is precisely, you know, what Kant hated about art, it's impersonal un, uh, lack of intentionality it's lack of a of a kind of um of a of a pathological intensive purpose in mm. that sense um and and it's why he assigns it the label genius almost like a mm. band-aid people talk about the, the concept of kantian genius kant is quite happy to downplay the role of aesthetics in his overall philosophy and to treat it as a marginal problematic in an already rigorous philosophical system of um, uh, logicism. Um, mm. uh, it, art doesn't gel well with that because there's some sense that it's not intentional. It seems um, any kind of creative force that lacks that intentionality, that purpose, and that kind of pathology, he doesn't mm. like. So genius is kind of a band-aid and he puts it on that. But you, know, you, you see with Nietzsche, like, and I, 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 I really want to talk about Nietzsche now because you probably mm. But, um, but, but you know, Nietzsche's whole concept that he brings out of Schopenhauer as well is this idea of, you know, like you were saying, will, you know, it, 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 it's, it, you know, what if the art, you know, it, it, I mean, this is mainly taken from Eastern aesthetics and Buddhism, and what have you, kind of everything and nothing and all that sort of stuff. But will in place of reason as a sort, you know, a trans individual, um sort of creative force you know mm. that that kind of all, Nietzsche describes the world as quote a, a work of art that gives birth to itself and he he thinks of it in these terms it's a concept teleoplexy which is what Guy Deleuze and people like Nick Land love about Nietzsche um life on earth as a planetary artistic experiment and so he takes that from Schopenhauer and the idea that genius and and creativity is like is is the function of this surplus of our intensive um, uh, our, our intensive um, uh, purposiveness that you know we can create and make all these things you know it's uh, uh, you know and 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 primarily the purposelessness and the unintelligibility of this process the fact that we can't say anything about it in advance is solely what gives it its meaning. This mm. is what Nietzsche makes very clear in total opposition to Kantian um, sort of um, logicism. Like it is the lack of purpose uh, and it can, the only thing one can say about it beforehand is um, uh, sort of the, the uh, Das Übermenschen or the Superman. You know, that, that's, that's his idea for, for the artist, for the creator, for the mm. philosopher, for the, the, the new man, the tyro of the future. Mm. And uh, I, I think that's, that's, a, that's an amazing sort of continuation. I mean, Nietzsche gets kind of lost in, in what happens in Greenbergianism. Um, he's sort of confined to the margins and it's mainly Trotsky and then Kant later. But um, I th I'm very much interested in Nietzsche and aesthetics, mm -hmm. I, I, like I'm, um, in that sense. I wanted to respond to something you were saying about like this kind of Nietzschean idea of, uh, you know, art uh, benefits in a sense from its own kind of uh, lack of purpose. Um, yeah. 
And purpose uh, of purposelessness. Yeah, is, is yeah. The word that I seem to recall. Yeah, and um, I mean, I, I I guess that that's true in some ways, uh, but the way that I've grown to think about things it relates to to, to the name of my channel, Automachination. Right. Yeah. The, yeah. The tagline is the process before life's a process begins. When I originally started this channel, uh, I was going to put other stuff on it that I've uh, uh, done. Like, you know, I, I, I do uh, coding for like literary analysis or whatever. I was going to mm. do like these like tutorial uh, how to's because you don't really see stuff like that. Right. Especially, you know, literary analysis with programming from someone that's actually, you know, a, you know, I'm an actual critic. Right. I'm an actual artist. Um, uh, but, uh, 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 my, my, my brain goes too many directions. I need to control myself and just do what I really need to do, which is uh, kind of like what we're doing now. Yeah. Um, uh, but the, the, the idea behind automachination besides this kind of like, I guess, techie sort of little element to it is, um, you know, at a certain point, right. When it comes to something like art, uh, and artistic judgment, I feel like things of their own accord, more or less become a given and that's true even if you could technically say well there is no actual purpose right because human beings create that purpose right uh, and that's one of the main advantages right you don't have that uh, in so many aspects of life uh, except for art right where you have much more control over what you do on another level though uh uh think things do kind of like take their own shape like what, what i think of like well if I could like describe like, uh, you know, an ideal kind of artistic theory, like if you want to call it that, although I'm not really in the business of that kind of stuff either. But if I were to sort of go into this like realm of philosophy, I would talk about, you know, uh, things that have an additive quality, right? I mean, um, most recently when I started writing poetry again, I was very much reminded of the fact that you know, more than kind of like anything else that you could do, it really, really demands uh, uh, precision from line to line because you have little, you have a lot to work with, but also at the same time, very little to work with, right? I mean, um, if you decide to make a poem that's titled Untitled, uh, the issue that is you're being given this space automatically. It's granted to you, right? You're allowed a title, right? That's one of the norms, right? That's one of the way, ways that culturally and also just how the human brain processes things. Like you are allowed a title. So if you tell yourself, I'm going to systematically never title my poems, you are giving up, right? A unit of meaning, right? You're leaving something um, uh, on the table, which might not be advisable if you have a sort of additive view of greatness. Uh, if you're working, right, uh, and you come to the end of a line and you decide, okay, I want my line break here. I want the next line break there. You're doing, you know, uh, things with enjambment. If you decide to not work with enjambment and just break your lines willy-nilly, that is another problem because you're leaving units of meaning, units of tech, technical virtuosity and other things on the table needlessly, simply. And the only reason that you could give is like, what, you're lazy? You don't want to do it? Like, it's too hard, right? Um, so uh, just, uh, it, you know, it, it's, it's not so much that uh, I, I think that art innately has a purpose because it cannot. I agree with Nietzsche in that sense. And I agree that, that there's a lot of freedom that's afforded in that fact. But uh, we should not like 
uh, uh, we should not downplay how things tend to really accumulate and go, you know, of their own accord, right? I feel like there's this kind of like snowball acceleration that happens again and again in so many things in life. And because art is not divorced from the fabric of reality, right? Um, uh, since that's not the case. Uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's true, it's, very, it's, very it's true. A, it reminds me of something yeah. I was saying in a video recently, actually, very, very closely, where I was saying that, you know, art, art is not something separate from reality, it's something in reality. And the level to which kind of concepts can create, and the, the level at which concepts become tendencies, you know, or, or tendencies form, seem to form their own concepts, the way in which, um, you, you know, um, um, what one thinks of Marshall McLuhan, and I think in a way, sort of Marshall McLuhan, is sort of um, no, no one really talks about him anymore, but I think he you know, there's there's some real kind of. I'm not, I'm not familiar there. with his ideas. Like what like what core idea? If you could just summarize that. Well, well, um, uh, for instance, his most famous saying is, you know, the medium yeah. is the. Mm -hmm. You know, um, the the mean the ways in which sort of the mediums like uh, transform our, our lives in in these bigger ways. They're the bigger context. They're the message. You know, in, in the sense that you know all the stuff that appears on TV. Well, the real, but we talk about all the stuff that appears on TV, but we, you know, don't, if you look out your window at night, you see the empty streets that are a consequence of the TV. You know, you talk about the cars, but we don't, don't talk about the endless road um, snakes of tarmac going around the planet, you know, where, you know, entire portions of cities are just given over to roads, you know, the ways in which these things mm -hmm. change our lives, that they have an almost autonomic tendency. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love that word. I always cars, use that word, auto, autonomic, cars, right? Yeah, yeah. Right? And the way that, you know, cars almost want you to build more roads, televisions mm -hmm. desire more TV pro, art galleries need paintings. And you know, do you know what I mean? Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, the, the places like um, uh, uh, auction houses like Sotheby's need stuff to be rolling in to, mm -hmm. to, to cap those price records what have you uh, these become system loops feedback loops like autonomic auto catalytic if you will mm. feedback loops i mean and this yeah. is what capital is capital yeah. is a massive um, um self-perpetuating positive feedback circuit in, in a sense uh, and um i think the the ways in which kind of one can be abstractly practicing um various things like capital you know unknowingly in which in, in the i mean this this can this becomes almost like capitalist realism here where we're, we're talking about capitalism being almost this all-pervasive force that we are the puppets of but you mm. know um it, these days in a modern society um in, in, a, in a techno commercial te techno capital world most of the time if we do anything well and anything to a surplus you know with, with a kind of surplus of production kind of it, you know capital comes in through the back door it's hard to do anything kind of well and not having turned into a sort of enterprise you know it's sort of Mao has a has a land talks about this but Mao has this metaphor where he talks about capital being like mushrooms you know kind of like they, they just keep popping up the amount of aggression you need to the, the, the amount you have to aggress against capital just to have it come in um which is which is which is weird now um when we when we again think about kind of like um like we were talking about intentionality uh, to do and politics and purpose and what have you well you know it, in a in a slightly rhetorical way uh, in, in my videos i talk about well what is the what does the art want 
if, if only a kind of a, a rhetorical sort of turning around of the humanist argument of, you know, how can I service this or that humanist project, you know, well, what what if what if um, um what if we just turn it around you know if, if rather kind of you know the art objects and what have you being you know um, um uh paraphernalia ideological paraphernalia what you know what if we are the incubators of these things you know what if you know inter uh, trans individually interpersonally kind of the mm -hmm. art um re multiplies itself through us that this thing art is almost like some you know this alien which invades our reality mm -hmm. um uh, through through the stuff of our reality or like it's you know the terminator you know skynet travels back in time to write itself into the future you know art is just this feedback loop that we're stuck in you know it's like um, uh, it's totally naturalized but yet it needs to always be on the move because somehow if it, if it isn't it, it stops it dies you know mm -hmm. it has to constantly be mutating and uh, it's, it's it's a weird thing to think about and it's slightly it goes into the realms of speculative um fiction you know almost fi fiction theory you know speculative fiction because mm -hmm. it seems kind of sci-fi-ish but like I, I think that it's an interesting way to think about um those questions of uh insofar as they have to do with what we were talking about with purpose and yeah. sort of the purposive political um uh intentions of the art or its political um teleology yeah i i i feel like that's one of the things um you know perhaps that ought to be tackled maybe you know eventually if i do like a big book on like you know art criticism in general as it applies like across the board mm -hmm. one of the things that really needs to be explored is this you know idea of you know how ethics can intersect with aesthetics but in mm -hmm. a way that's like not this like you know brain dead you know like the uh what was it yeah. um what was that the classic essay by uh uh shelley um a defensive poetry like very you know just very kind of over the top moralizing that's not what i'm talking about but that's definitely like an underrated feature that needs to be explored more and needs to be explored uh seriously um yes. yeah. which is which uh, i guess brings us to a transition to uh clinic greenberg and uh, i don't mean oh, to like uh yeah I, I i don't mean to uh edge the audience uh, uh too much here but uh, before we even get to Greenberg, let's just like define, I guess, our like sense of aesthetics a little bit. And if if like we see any differences between that and art artistic criticism, I mean, I mentioned this before, but, um, uh, I, you know, I don't view uh, aesthetics and artistic criticism, artistic judgment to be one of the same. When I think of words like uh, uh, kitsch, uh, to me, they are nothing more than aesthetic descriptions, which does not connotate uh, a quality or a lack of quality in, in art, right? It's not, it's not the same thing as an artistic judgment to me, although Greenberg um, does use it as a kind of de facto artistic judgment in his uh, uh, essay. So maybe if yeah. you have like a few words on that before we go into the essay. On, on judgment? Um, um, well, I mean, just about like what I said, like, do, like, do you view like aesthetics as separate from artistic judgment? Uh, do you, no, do you view that? Personally, no. I mean, uh, but I think, I think, I think this is just, um, and and you know, this, this, so I'm, I'll be, I'm trying to be humble here, but it's, I, I, I think it's more just a case of um, uh, the way we think about the roles of these things, uh, more, more really about the commercial roles of these guys, the critic and the artist, I think uh, in, in a way, 
and, and I was just talking about this with Mark on uh, again, my Against Nature podcast. I think, um, yeah, especially nowadays, you know, that there are so many critics, and there is there's certainly a kind of um, academy kind of criticism that goes on, which really is just the proliferation of the same. And I think that this this should be a word we bear in mind going forward into the into this conversation. The same, mm-hmm. and like much much of this stuff, the academies, the managers. The people when they speak, no one learns. You know, this stuff is just the same that goes on. I think good criticism, because that's because that's what you know. I, I think you and I both believe that we're into like good art. You know, so, you know, good criticism, good art. I think both involves creativity. I think very often mm-hmm. there is a very thin yeah, of line course. Yeah. when you know, and good critics and good artists blur the lines themselves. Where artists we've seen take on a critical perspective, they criticize the critic or kind of, or we've seen critics who've become quite creative. And also this thing, which I'm reminded of a quote from T.S. Eliot, where he said, um, sometimes the reader reads, the poem the reader, forgive me if I paraphrase here, but the poem the reader reads is a different poem than the one the poet has written. In fact, and, and this is really great, it may even be a better one. I think that that case in which sort of, you know, criticism is is a form of ekphrasis. You know, it's not just you having a fucking opinion. You're putting your opinion into a form mm-hmm. in, in a public way. And it's an you're remaking the work. It's ekphrasis. And within that work, it's like we were talking about in our last conversation, the fact that what, what happens when we paraphrase the art? You make it a game. And in that remaking, you betray the art. So what happens? What opens up in the space between the artists making and the critics making or remaking. So what happens? Now Diderot would do this. Or this is why Diderot was so interesting. He had so many bad fucking opinions, but he he get he gets what's happening kind of on the level of um, sort of uh, the the critical the critical phrases, like how one actually has to form a, a criterion for the judgments one makes about the art. And you know, we were talking about you know what 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 um what the art approves of too. Uh, in another video, I was talking about um, this this painting by David, uh, the, the Death of Marat, where someone was saying that the painting was unsuccessful because it, it, it supposedly was trying to romanticize or valorize a very bad man. And I just thought this is this is kind of simple. This is a too simple way to think about what the art condones. When I look at the painting, I see a dramatic image. I see a space of um, complicated relationships so between um, uh, shadow and light, between sort of um, uh, between all, all sorts of things, and and these things can lead one to a sophisticated relationship of all sorts of uh, a sophisticated appreciation of all sorts of other relationships in one's life. I mean, like uh, it, it's very much the same elaborate mechanism that comes into play when you make judgments about art that you use when you make judgments about anything else this mm-hmm. is how art comes about we couldn't have the arts unless we learned to in some way enjoy our sen- our you know our physical senses the, the very senses we use to gauge our environment and you know figure out whether we're safe or whether we're not safe whether we can trust someone or believe someone it's this it's not a different process it just becomes involved in a more elaborate thing that happens in the art yeah so and and they both are i, I think i think you know they, they both arise one arises from the other uh, so you know um I, I don't, I, I think it's, it's all about, 
that, that the question of judgment and ethics and aesthetics, it's complicated. And while on the surface, you know, they may seem benign ideas like, you know, beauty and what, what have you kind of, you know, when we talk about it, we do get into quagmires of kind of, but, you know, I don't think there's a practical philosophy for kind of what you can say is um, sort of uh, a pure kind of creative sort mm -hmm. of judgment or a kind of a pure aesthetic judgment because very often I, I think it's just the case that kind of the roles have been naturalized and we very much think of the role of the critic as being of a second order nature um perfunctory yeah which is how it works commercially actually mm -hmm. most of the time the the critic is somebody who you know provides the kind of seal, you know the, the the seal of approval what's hot what's not, you know yeah. what's what's back and what's you know on the scene it's um, um and those guys are malignant you know those guys aren't really critics i would say it's it's dead labor like which which is like what, what i think kitsch is you know like i understand your objection to kitsch but you know i think sort of you know and, and greenberg i think is the the great sort of person who puts forth the, the most convincing convincing argument for what kitsch might be in sort of our world, sort of our capitalist sort of society, you know, um, he sees it as the Alexandrianism of modern culture. That's the term he puts it in. Mm -hmm. And the timelessness of kitsch, it, 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 it represents paralyzed culture. Uh, it, it, you know, it represents- um, well, um, the timelessness, timelessness in the sense that it keeps coming up again and again, but it, it had, you know, a, I guess, uh, it's deep. Timelessness also in the sense that timelessness also in the sense that it was pastoral, bucolic and rustic okay. as well. And these very much appeal, you know, people suddenly in the urban centers, uh, you know, early industrial revolution, suddenly this becomes the fashion, um, that people in sort of, uh, industrial centers want to know about people living in the highlands in Scotland. They want to know about people living in the Himalayas. These are exotic, interesting things. Uh, and yeah, but I think Kitsch for, for first and foremost is part is, is market research. It, it's, it's there to exist. It exists to focus the consumer mind by pandering to consumer sensibilities. In Marxian terms, this is you know, this could be called dead labor. But, you know, I think there is a big overlap between something like Greenbergian aesthetics and something like Schneiderian aesthetics, actually. I mean, it's not a pure formalism, but it's it, it's it, it's a very kind of um, robust kind of, um, uh, I mean, you, you look at something like avant-garde and kitsch and modern painting, I, I think, I believe that's what the essay is called, his other seminal essay, but like these, these are very sort of, um, nimber muscular arguments uh, uh, like um, uh, uh, sort of um, formulations for kind of what a high culture means and what the stakes are and um, and, and and the idea of the cliche right because because this this is important to, to to Greenberg like when he talks about kitsch and he talk it's really the 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 revolutionary necessity something from Trotsky the revolutionary necessity to shirk off cliche and the same a certain timelessness, a certain kind of, you know, um, uh, anything, anything that, that pandered, yeah, something that meets you. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, j j just to like, I guess, go through some of the, just like, I guess, chronologically a little bit through the essay uh, for yeah. anyone that's not, not familiar with it. So uh, Clement Greenberg is arguing that, um, so, we have like the avant-garde, right? People yeah. that we, we'd now consider uh, avant-garde, like, you know, Picasso, especially like back then where he was writing in 1939. Uh, this is when the essay was published. So like looking back, Picasso had already achieved his uh, his fame. 
Um, and uh, the reason why he sees the avant-garde emerging, not just like in, you know, the 1900s when he was writing, but also like historically, right? When do we have these historical situations where the avant-garde emerges? And to him, uh, uh, it emerges uh, specifically to kind of like keep culture, you know, chugging along, right? There's all these uh, attacks on culture. There's always these like threats of decadence. And because eventually, you know, art always tends to, just like, you know, with anything, um, art tends to become academic. Art becomes formulaic. Uh, right now we have, you know, like cookie cutter MFA type writing. You know, we had, you know, uh, academic painting, which which had its, you know, bad reputation uh, uh, centuries ago. Um, and uh, he sees the avant-garde as like the corrective to this. Yeah. And um, in, in, and uh, uh, so as the avant-garde tries to correct for uh, all these problems in the art world, at the same time, uh, specific to the 18 and 1900s, we have an expansion of two things. Uh, he doesn't mention material conditions in general, but we definitely do have an expansion, right? As Steven Pinker would argue of like material well-being. the average person in the 1900s is definitely doing better than the average person in the 1500s or the 1700s. We also have with it an expansion of literacy, right? And the two tend to go hand, to, hand in hand. But as you know, literacy expands, and as perhaps uh, people have a bit more leisure time or whatever, um, they also become a market, right, for capitalists to dump their goods on. One of these goods could be art objects, right? And art objects are in scare quotes because uh, these art objects that's dumped on the masses is kitsch, and because the working class, let's say, doesn't have enough time to really study all the codes that go into something like a Picasso painting, uh, they're going to be far more, especially at the beginning, ready to reject that and far more willing to embrace something like kitsch, which is just kind of, you know, uh, it's, it's very easy to enjoy. It's very easy to understand. So kitsch becomes something that the uh, working class uh, is, is flooded in while the cultural elites get to enjoy their Picassos and get to enjoy, you know, everything else that, you know, is a kind of, you know, a function of leisure. Um, this is, this is, this is um, um, Greenberg distancing himself to some extent from Trotsky because mm -hmm. uh, Trotsky, Trotsky defines himself against Stalin because Stalin believes that Art, art should um, um, connect its aims with the aims of the revolutionary party. And if it didn't, it was bourgeois and anti-revolutionary, counter-revolutionary. And you know, you know what happens then. What mm -hmm. Trotsky, Trotsky really believes that art should engage itself with indigenous and sort of um, nativist political struggles, but that it should seek its own self-definition. And this is what begins, you know, as we were saying, sort of art for art's sake, um, uh, modernism. Um, modernist art for art's sake, but um, the Greenbergian formalism counters the idea that progressive art um, has to do with personal indigenous traditions and sort of political struggles. It, it actually, it, it, it's hostile to that, um, which is what you're, you're getting here where it says, you know, kind of, you, you shouldn't, you know, it, it, it's, it's stupid to try and um, basically, uh, I mean, basically, in, in his own terms, he said uh, the unique and proper area of competence of each art coincided with all that was unique to the nature of its medium. So a painting shouldn't involve itself 
with any kind of reference to anything beyond the material and its assembly for content. So th this idea of its necessity to deliberately connect its aims to kind of stuff outside and reference mm -hmm. all this sort of stuff outside of itself, it becomes part of Greenberg's narrative for the, the painting seeking its own purity, defining its own self, which, which is in some, in some sense a kind of a, a self-purifying, a kind of purging, a jettisoning of kind of reference and, you know, um, uh, literary devices and what have you. Um, yeah, this, this is where kind of Greenbergian formalism becomes abstractionism and, uh, and turns into abstract expressionism. But it is a, his concept, it, you're right, in, in, in his essay, it's very much right on this myth of the avant-garde, which begins mm -hmm. with fauvism and, and ends, basically, when Hitler is elected chancellor. And, um, uh, and you have this, basically what Greenberg is saying, the revolutionary sort of imperative there is that, okay, we need a new avant-garde, though they, they should, like, in the, um, but what, what can it be about if it can't connect directly to, you know, if it can't count on the revolution, you know, mm -hmm. um, um, what, what, so it has to define itself on its own terms. And that's a, a purism, a purism purging of stuff. And it, it, it very often turns into a kind of other critics talking about Greenbergian formalism have used such terms as um, a, a dramatic reductionism. So we get a kind of emptying out of stuff and an enlarging of stuff. And you know, this becomes the, um, um, the logoistic, iconic Greenbergian um, modernist look and, and what have you. But again, this, is, this is, becomes the bete noir of modernist mm -hmm. intellectual aesthetic theory and very, you know, towards the end of the 70s, it's now completely off the table in sort of art schools and galleries, sort of very, only retrospectively wheeled out as celebrity pieces. You know, no one really takes Greenberg seriously. He seems very old hat and opposed to conceptualism, which is you know, very much, um, uh, you know, it, it takes Greenberg as its foil, you know, and, and basically tries to subvert and um, uh, disown Greenbergism. But that's that's kind of like my understanding of Greenberg, and so um, and like and, and like in, in a way, kind of like there's all sorts of overlaps. Like again, that I see with um, um, other critics today, but also kind of with my own sensibilities. I don't know. I mean, like, what what what, what was your takeaway from like Avant-garde? So, I mean, I suppose. I mean, I don't suppose you think that Tim like Kitch is any more credible, but. Um, um, well, I mean, there's just like a, a well, just just like I'm just starting from a, a different standpoint. So I just have a, a ton of issues with some of the framing, I guess, some of the language. Uh, uh -huh. First of all, uh, he he doesn't um, he doesn't truly define kitsch, but to just like the, the way the, the way that he describes, I guess, uh, in an ultimate form. Um, he says kitsch using for raw material the debased and academicized simulacra of genuine culture welcomes and cultivates this insensibility. It is the source of its profits. Kitsch is mechanical and operates by formulas. Kitsch is vicarious experience and faked sensations. Kitsch changes according to style, but remains always the same. Kitsch is the epitome of all that is spurious in the life of our times. Kitsch pretends to demand nothing of its customers except their money, not even their time. And I mean, one of the examples that he uh, uses again and again is, uh, so like we have like that, that Russian painter, Ilya uh, Repin, right? Oh, yeah. And, and uh, he uses that, um, what was that uh, painting? Uh, uh, 
Oh, it was like it was it was the uh, reply of the Cossacks to reply of the Cossacks to like yeah. some Turkish warlord or whatever. And yeah. famously, famously, they, you know, had this kind of like a dirty letter that they sent, uh, uh, you know, when he asked for surrender. Um, <laughs> and uh, like so, like on the one hand, I can sort of understand where he's going uh, with identifying these kinds of objects as kitsch in the sense that I can imagine you know, a vast majority of people at any given time, especially let's say in the last uh, century and a half or so, uh, when uh, Repin was uh, doing these paintings, um, they would look at it, right? They would be able to enjoy it and they'd be able to understand what is going on. Uh, uh, perhaps, it, you know, in the most superficial sense with these paintings and other like kitsch-like objects, they don't necessarily have to think all that hard. But since I view kitsch as, uh, you know, an aesthetic category rather than something that's subject to artistic judgment, um, uh, for me, kitsch is not simply something that is easily enjoyed and easily understood, which seems to be the two conditions that he has for defining kitsch. For me, the defining feature of kitsch is not that, although it could be that, uh, it's more so that there is this, uh, perception right there's this perception of being easily understood and being easily enjoyed and this yeah. can include objects that are actually complex great works of art and also objects that are you know kitsch in the pejorative sense right that have nothing more to them um and since that's the way that i mean like for example like i i recently picked up uh one of my favorite books Char charlotte's web picked up a, a, co a copy of this and um, just like in prepping for this conversation, I was like, can Charlotte's Web be considered kitsch by a large number of people in the sense that they could easily enjoy it and easily understand it? The answer, of course, is yes, because it is a children's book, right? Um, and even when adults read it, right, they can, you know, understand the lessons to the extent that there's more lessons. Um, and so this is the way that that uh, the book ends. And right, and to me, this is like a perfect representation of kitsch in literature. Mm -hmm. As time went on and the months and years came and went, he, meaning Wilbur the pig, he was never without friends. Fern did not come regularly to the barn anymore. She was growing up and was careful to avoid childish things like sitting on a milk stool near a pig pen. But Charlotte's children and grandchildren, great-grandchildren, year after year, lived in the doorway. Each spring, there were new little spiders hatching out to take the place of the old. Most of them sailed away on their balloons, but always two or three stayed and set up housekeeping in the doorway. Mr. Zuckerman took fine care of Wilbur all the rest of his days, and the pig was often visited by friends and admirers for nobody ever forgot the year of his triumph and the miracle of the web. Life in the barn was very good. Night and day, winter and summer, spring and fall, dull days and bright days. It was the best place to be, thought Wilbur, this warm, delicious cellar, with the garrulous geese, the changing seasons, the heat of the sun, the passage of swallows, the nearness of rats, the sameness of sheep, the love of spiders, the smell of manure, and the glory of everything. Wilbur never forgot Charlotte. Although he loved her children and grandchildren dearly, none of the new spiders ever quite took her place in his heart. She was in a class by herself. 
it is not often that someone comes along who is a true friend and a good writer. Charlotte was both. I mean, there are some poeticisms in this ending. The very last paragraph about Charlotte, uh, it's, it's very prosaic, right? But the poetry is kind of implied. It's condensed. It's based on, you know, parallels. Uh, but th this is very kitschy in the sense that, you know, it's a universally loved book. It's a book that adults can understand, kids can understand. Um, and it, it fits the definition of kitsch under the definition that I provide, right? In terms of like perceptual habits, right? In terms of um, uh, whether or not this could be mass reproduced because it is mass reproduced. Perhaps it's a little bit out of vogue in 2021, but generally speaking, you know, it is one of the most mass produced books of the 20th century and perhaps even parts of the 21st. Um, and you know, the, the kitsch, like a, as represented by Charlotte's web, it's, it can't be a pejorative, right? It's a description of what you can expect. It's a description of some of the emotions that you could feel. And, but to me, the difference between a great work of art that is kitschy versus kitsch that is not great, uh, art is I will hold the work that is not great art at arm's length, right? Whereas this, like, I mean, you know, reading this, like I feel myself like choking up, right? It's very easy for me to cry these kinds of descriptions. Of course, this, you know, seems very crass, right? This is a kind of an exemplar of what kitsch is, right? You would start sort of tear jerking. But I mean, I'm thinking about this on another level. I'm thinking about the book structurally. I see its merits in a way that, you know, perhaps many readers wouldn't. But it's still kitsch, right? Under you know, I think most definitions that you could find. Um, I mean, like, do, do you have like a response to, to that? Like, what, what are your thoughts on that kind of framing? Whether Charlotte's Web is kitsch or not? Well, I mean, in general, like you, you could even switch out Charlotte's Web for something oh, else if you, you prefer it. Me. I think it's definitely kitsch. <laughs> yeah, but um, but do you consider it a great novel? No, I mean, I like. Um, no, I mean it's 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 all right. I'm mean, like, oh, I'm that's where we disagree. It's a great work of art, just flat out. Maybe I should do it's like an, an essay on this. I, I tell you what I remember of um, um, I tell you what I remember about Charlotte's Web. Read it, I read remember, it as an adult. See if you see any differences. I remember Perhaps reading you do. And being like, "Good God, like this pig really enjoys slop." You know, it's it's it's, it's written here. Um, it, yeah, um, um, it's it's a good it's a good book, but it's you know I think you know I. Are you, are you saying like um, um children's literature is an interesting one and and you talk about kind of um, um sort of welling up like um uh, with with the animals and stuff like yeah, yeah i mean like listen i mean if you want to stick on marley and me i'll probably well up like that too i mean i'm a big animal lover too mm -hmm. I mean, like, but it's it's and you know, like sometimes on YouTube, I'll go down these horrible rabbit holes where I'm just constantly watching videos of cute animals and people, mm -hmm. you know, like uh, putting subtitles for animals. It's it's terrible, but what can I say? I'm human. Uh, but, but this is the point, you know. I mean, like, um, I can like it's you know these these sort this sort of stuff. Um, I don't know. Like, I'm trying. I'm trying to kind of like come up with like the right counter argument here to the to like what what I think is 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 a kind of a a kind of slightly inconspicuous error that I think a lot of people make when they talk about kids. You know, it's 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 not like it's not that like um. um uh, kitsch is is kind of the, like uh, it the. 
I, I think kind of when it comes to how well something is wrought and how well something is done, it's very easy to look at kitchen a lot of the time and see touches and marks that, you know, the, the signs of craftsmanship and such. And I think definitely like, like when you, again, you were reading Charlotte's Web, I was having flashbacks to reading it when I was in school and the vivid descriptions of just, again, the pig eating the slop and like how tasty the slop is described. And mm -hmm. uh, you can like, even though it's slop, like the, you, you get how wonderful this is for the pig and how the pig, you know, this is its life and it revels in kind of the, the, the detritus and this is like um, brilliant. But you, you know, it's, I think that like, if you just compare something like Charlotte's Web to, um, so I, I, I don't think there's much, there's, there's anything that's really kind of subversive or like really capital A artistic going on in, in, in something like Charlotte's Web. I think, you know, you know, I mean, I don't know. I just think you've made a really good argument for, for it being kitsch. And again, like killing kitsch doesn't preclude it from being enjoyable and from it being good. I mean, well, that's, uh, that, that's one of the, that's supposed to be works. one of the defining features. Yeah. Works. You know, kitsch works because um, um, we like it because it, it works. It works for us. Uh, and but then the the, whole, the whole, that's that's kind of not what kind of um, formalist aesthetics and kitsch is really trying to get at. Um, the, the like kitsch, like real creativity, real art within kind of Greenbergian aesthetics is something akin to. Um, what, what only Russian formalists called estrangement. Or kind of astronomy kind of the the idea of the art is that kind of uh, it's you know because again this is all coming out of marx and hegel and stuff that kind of like art has kind of this this future this kind of horizon it goes towards kind of art constructs itself through history it constructs itself through historical time mm -hmm. so there is a kind of um, um so like formalism from a from a greenbergian standpoint does have a kind of end of history so it has a kind of like imperative a sort of a, a revolutionary imperative to kind of um, undergo these transformations and resist the same not only because the same is kind of sort of paralyzes art it isn't natal to art the way he thinks of it but it's it's a culture of the same that is designed to um uh amplify the same and that you know it, again it becomes the same gets louder and louder and more and more persistent mm -hmm. um, and kind of the goal of art it's it, it's it's search to define itself and to make aesthetic experience an end in of itself is to get it more in kilter with kind of everyday life, paradoxically, kind of by, by, um, um, by opening up art in terms of not what it encourages or represents, but simply in what it's formed of. Mm -hmm. um, uh, th this, this somehow kind of makes its way into our life. I mean, this is, this is like um, formalist sort of aesthetics going back to Cezanne where process is content where it's not about what the, the art kind of is, but how it's kind of, but, but this, this kind of thing isn't some sort of dry, arid um, game that formalists are playing, where kind of, you know, um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, like kids in a sandbox. Uh, the idea is that they're, they're playing with the building blocks of, rea of, of, of the medium. They're playing with the context of the medium itself, kind of the, the possibility. For, they're, they're becoming more attentive to the possibility of, um, under which kind of these these great works of art appear, it it's um, um so so for, like um, with kitsch, I think kitsch is is you know whatever kind of um, sort of 
goes into it and there's an awful lot of like kitsch cinema for instance nowadays and kitsch music that mm -hmm. kind of has all sorts of charms and qualities but is nonetheless kitsch you know and and i think kind of does the business of kitsch as it were um um <laughs> or auto autonomically you know mm -hmm. it, it becomes part of that um, um that that feedback i think yeah. art is like a more of a like real like art okay if we want to talk about authentic art and i think authenticity is a is a precondition of our conversation that like real art is something like a glitch in the system it, it's something really like a, a, a glitch some sort of aberration some something that really kind of is yeah. is slightly unaccountable and it's why it gets back to what we were talking about earlier but the sort of the almost the moral dubiousness of some great art in terms of what it proposes mm -hmm. I, I think you know there's some art that we can look at and we can recognize and go oh this is good this is good art you know like um uh, oh it hits you it's hitting all the right beats here okay but at the end of the day that art can still turn out to be kitsch this mm -hmm. is this this the, the, the double bind of kitsch in our culture, which is you know a kitsch culture. In fact, you know the, this is kitsch is a result of capitalism, which is a result of modernity. It's it's a problem that kind of art has to face in a way. It's a problem we have to face, and it's not so clear as kind of like kitsch is pictures of velvet clowns or kitsch uh, novels about um, uh, um, BDSM vampires. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's it's. It's much more, there's a lot of hard work to do, as, as someone like um, um, uh, Gadamer would put it, in the realm of aesthetics. But that doesn't mean it's not worthwhile. And um, uh, it doesn't mean kitsch is some just fugitive, um, flimsy red herring, I think. Well, let me try another tack and then we can move on to like the next sure. part, part of the essay. Uh, uh, do you accept just conceptually uh, the possibility that there could be a great work of art that, is a children's novel. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I accept the possibility of that, yeah. And uh, assuming that this tr uh, possibility transpires, wouldn't by definition that great children's book, which is optimized for A, enjoyment, and B, you know, universal understanding, immediate understanding perhaps, uh, at least in its more superficial levels, wouldn't you agree then that that great work of art meant for children is also by definition kitsch? That's that's when things get weird, certainly. And that we can talk about um, great paintings or masterpieces, which become implicated in a kind of kitsch culture um, by no fault of their own, in a sense. But in that, for, for instance- Well, you, you would only use the word fault if, if kitsch is pejorative from the get-go, but you don't have to view it that way. You know what I mean? That's basically oh, what I'm getting I at. I understand, but um, um, if, if you'll if you'll um, uh, bear with me, it, it's some um, like uh, um, you know, like the way that great paintings turn up on the side of biscuit tins or um, uh, cooking mm -hmm. tins or what have you, on postcards or even kind of when you see them on the side of um, you, you get like Monet sunflower, like Louis Vuitton handbags. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? It's a, so yeah, it's it's it becomes weird at the level in which kind of you know we live in an age of mechanical reproduction. And that mechanical reproduction gets, you know, very strange when we have representations of representations. And then, I mean, these paintings, which are, you know, we get pictures of them and the, the, the pictures become kind of iconic because they become, um, they become like memes. I think mm -hmm. this is this is a word that is quite new, but this idea of the, the meme is, is very prevalent, very crucial, I think, to modernism. Uh, in sort of Nietzsche and his peers would have thought of it as hyperstition, but that, that for us, it's memes. It's these almost like we were saying, autonomics, kind of like these 
things which become tendencies, which mm -hmm. blow up, you know, these ideas which have no owner, these pictures which have copies which have no original. Suddenly, art gets put in this weird zone now where it has to deal with this world of mirrors and it's like funhouse mirrors. And again, where everything is displaced into the market and where kitsch moves to involve everything intensively. This is, this is the thing about kitsch. It's an intensive movement that, that it seeks to draw more in while, um, um, uh, again, um, sort of uh, um, in, in, um, recommensurating it to its standards. Yeah, it's, ne it's, never in a, it's never a full absorption of the other, the ulterior. It's always a totally, you know, it totally becomes, um, uh, uh, it totally works within the values of kind of the, those market values within those commodity mm -hmm. values or whatever. And, and there's no escape, there's no exit in a way. This is the dilemma of um, capitalist realism and what have you, kind of like, how does one extricate oneself? from this whole business of, I mean, not just the Institute, but, you know, capital when it, you know, it's so pervasive. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I mean, I mean, it might not be such a big deal for, for, for you or, or for any art person listening to this or for practicing artists even. I mean, it's certainly de rigueur for people to think about art as a kind of business, as a kind of art nowadays, mm -hmm. um, especially in our entrepreneurial, entrepreneur centric culture we live in now. But um, yeah, um, uh, 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 was there more to get to in the, the essay? Yeah, well, just I, I, well, you touched on the kind of like you know capitalist elements that are kind of you know uh, inherent in the essay as well. Um, so one of the things also that I have a, a problem with here is just the fact that um, so um, you know, like a, a, a lot of Marxist analysis. Here's like the irony to me, like you know, like Marxism is supposed to you know. Mm -hmm. It's supposed to theoretically turn Hegel on his head. It's supposed to invert, you know, Hegelian idealism into like actual materialism. But I noticed, uh, I noticed just like lots of materialism into that, uh, into, um, um, well, uh, well, well, hey, dialectical well, materialism. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, hey, Hegel's more kind of, you know, idealistic notion. Like, well, what, what was the, uh, the quote, uh, that he said something like, um, you know, uh, that it's, it's really like, you know, consciousness, right. That, that creates historical consciousness. Yeah. That, that creates the world. Whereas like, you know, Marx would say, or like Sartre would say, you know, like existence precedes essence. Right. Um, and mm -hmm. so, uh, and uh, I, I just noticed, like, in general, this tendency among Marxists, and I mean, it's not unsurprising, but it's there, where mm. they, they very much become idealists somewhat unknowingly, right, somewhat unwittingly. And uh, one of the ways that I'm seeing this come out in this essay is, so he, he sees, you know, the avant-garde as this kind of, you know, elitist reaction to academic art, right? People that are within a leisure class, people that are able to, you know, A, uh, either do the art or B, you know, have enough education to decode some of the elements in this art to actually appreciate it. Right, uh, the avant-garde is is there for that purpose, and 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 you know, kitsch is is what's force fed to everybody else. Yeah, um, he's, double, he's definitely doubling down on the idea of an elite, um, yeah. almost aristocratic idea of a high culture in, to, in a opposition to a yeah, name. yeah. And, and to me, there's this kind of like very severe idealism throughout this critique because, um, you know, within it is this implication that. If you were to have, you know, some sort of Marxist style equality, or perhaps not even equality, but just make things more equal than they are, you're going to, you know, under another system, you're going to have more people that are 
kind of compliant, right, with the avant-garde, right? They're going to be more willing to accept this art as art. They're going to be more willing to, or rather even have, you know, the time and the wherewithal, the leisure to, to uh, understand art. And so, you know, when Picasso first came out, now it doesn't seem very revolutionary, but when Picasso first came out, they, they would be among, you know, the groups of people that are first to kind of embrace Picasso. Um, and, you know, I'm not so sure that's true because for the same reason that I, I, I don't necessarily trust this idea that, you know, the elites have the leisure to decode Picasso and therefore they decode Picasso and accept them and everybody else rejects them. To me, uh, you know, I, I just view the art world and artistic judgment and a lot of like similar stuff and, you know, like cultural stuff that we have going on, mainstream liberalism today or whatever. A lot of it is just kind of, you know, identity games, right? So if you could wrap up, you, you know, you, you, you mentioned radical chic, like, well, Picasso could be radical chic to a bunch of capitalists, right? Uh, mm -hmm. they, they don't have to have any real understanding of this kind of stuff. In fact, you know, the more that we see like wealthy people now that cultivate platforms, like people like, you know, Eric Weinstein, you know, coming out of fucking nowhere, right? Manager of like, you know, Teal Capital. And now he's he's become this kind of cultural mainstay. When he talks, though, despite being rich, despite being hyper educated with a PhD, for, for the most part, he has no idea what he's talking about. And uh, most people involved in culture at any kind of juncture, whether it's lower class, upper class, they're probably in the same category, right? They're not going to like, most of these people would not be able to explain Picasso any better than a working class person who's reacting negatively to it not because there is anything innately negative necessarily to react, although I think there's some of that perhaps, uh, they're probably reacting negatively because they see these pampered elites that they already hate forging an identity around this. Why do so many working class people instinctively recoil at like, you know, this idea of like trans rights or whatever else? It's probably because they see elites embracing it and they're like, are you trying to like, you know, you know, come after me in some way, or you're trying to like turn me gay, turn me trans or like whatever that people say, um, you know, uh, I, you know, I, I just, I, I don't think that with more leisure time and more like material well-being, I don't think most people would necessarily become, you know, connoisseurs or even, you know, I, I think perhaps like a, a greater percentage of them can you know, cultivate a deeper understanding about things, obviously, you know, the function of like, you know, time and money, like you, you get to do those sort of, sort of things fine. But I think in general, the average person is going to be what happens in office space. I think office space is the kind of like mainstream reality where uh, somebody comes, you know, let's say they suddenly have like, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars or millions of dollars or whatever, they will do what that, you know, protagonist does, which is like, oh, what I want to do now, since I get to live the American dream is I want to wake up and I want to do nothing. Right. And that's like one of the underrated qualities of office space. It's like th this guy that finally gets what he wanted, which is money. Like, what does he do with it now? And his answer is nothing. I think that's probably true of most people. I don't think the elites have necessarily a greater kind of insight into something like, like the arts, right. Compared to anybody else. And I mean, eventually, you know, it's, it's kind of a cliche at this point, right. That the avant-garde becomes kind of like the, the old guard, right. Picasso is now 
honestly, like if you want to, if you want to be like a working class person and you want to sort of virtue signal that you actually have depth to you in some way, you're going to hang a Picasso right on your wall. You're not going to hang, you know, like something like, you know, that, that, that painting of like the dog's playing poker or whatever, right? You're going to hang a Picasso. You're going to hang a Caravaggio. You're going to say, look at me. I understand this kind of shit. Yeah, but he, but Greenberg is writing this in a very different time to you. And yeah. Picasso is a very different figure. Picasso isn't quite that figure he is yet. Yeah, he's um, not there yet. Way. But um, uh, but Picasso isn't quite the you know this um figure he is now. Um, um, I think you know it's 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 not always. I mean, certainly the the revolutionary class that and sort of the the actual communist party didn't accept picasso and they saw him as too bourgeois mm -hmm. and you know and but and it's also very much the case that many you know people uh, many high society people didn't take with um picasso because he was also too revolutionary you know um, mm -hmm. uh, it, it's uh, that was kind of his sort of paradoxical thing i mean there are very few people like picasso in that sense but i mean yeah, I mean, you're also talking about the cult of modernism, which is something that's just that's come about in the last 30, 40 years, where these sort of high modernists have become a kind of, you know, a, a brand, you know, you put the posters on your wall, it's like, hell, you can buy posters of Matisse at Ikea, uh, you, you know, and we have these Renault Picassos or whatever with Picasso's signature on them. Yeah, so like, in, in the interim, these artists, their myths have been turned into a whole iconography which is a big thing in kitsch and a big thing in um, sort of societies and uh, of control and what have you, that there are iconographies, that there are, you know, the, the, these things. I mean, it, it's become just another big sort of um, story that we, we all are sold and that we all buy into. There are kitsch versions of these artists' lives. You know, there are sort of hallmark daytime sort of biopic versions of the life of Matisse or the life of Picasso. There have been seven million films about the life of Van Gogh and songs mm -hmm. and covers by Ed Sheeran. So, yeah, you're like, I mean, yeah, like, art, art this is something that's is a lifestyle. The artist thing is a lifestyle. But, but these, this is, this is, important to know these things change all the time uh, throughout time throughout history sort of successively i mean um what it meant to be an artist to be a bohemian in in sort of early modernism is something very different than to be a bohemian nowadays in sort of um you know 2021 uh i i think the thing the thing that greenberg is is doing here is like you have to I think put it in the spirit of the zeitgeist too. I think. I, I mean, I, I keep saying like the larger context, but this is the larger context. You know, you've read Vonnegut, right? Have you read mm. Bluebeard? No, I mean I have, but I haven't read it. But but you but you know, kind of the spirit of Vonnegut. Mm. You know, the, the spirit of Vonnegut is one of profound pessimism, and this is saturated. I mean, he he likes the abstract expressionists, and he feels a kinship with the abstract expressionists. And and uh, and the, he again, he's a survivor in a way. He's a he's a sort of he's um, um he's you know he's a veteran of the war, or he, mm -hmm. and he's or he's seen things in the war, and he has this weird guilt and this paranoia about it. And it's the same kind of existential Sartrean horror as well that pervades um, Greenbergian sort of modernism at the time too. The this this the Nazis basically won. Or the Nazis by another name won, you know. Yes, the concentration camps and and what, but but what about Dresden? You know, the mm -hmm. the, the the Florence of the North firebombed everyone in it 
killed or the or the concentration camps in Kenya or or, or the, you know all the shit that Churchill did I mean basically the winners wrote the history books I mean mm. but you know things just changed and everyone forgot but and that's the horror of Vonnegut actually the baddies won but everyone was yeah the, everyone was bad everyone was evil but you know now we live in this world mm. which is the result of that you know, it, and it's, you know, you watched Satan's Brew the other night, I, think, mm. I believe you told me, kind of, that's the theme there, where kind of, you know, um, it, it's like, it's a world of kind of, where, where it, it's almost like the bourgeois world, it kind of represents evil values in, in a certain fucked up way. It's, it's this sort of moment of profound existential dread, I think. When, when someone like Willem de Kooning makes a big expressionistic painting, in 1957, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, if, if someone were to make a big expressionistic painting today, a normal everyday working person you pull off the street would have no trouble looking at that, I think, and going, oh yeah, wow, that's really emotional and really, you know, yeah, they, they yeah, just painted and they just felt it. They would find that really believable, Alex. Yeah. Normal everyday working schmucks who know nothing about art would find that it, they, they find that normal to think that there's something expressive and emotional and subjective in that stuff. Mm. People in the 1950s flat out rejected the concept entirely that there might be something beautiful about what Willem de Kooning was doing or what Rothko was doing or what Pollock was doing, but really what it was was a demonstration of the impossibility of any kind of sincere feeling whatsoever. That's how they looked at it. So it was almost like a kind of big shimmering void. That was their idea of the future of art. And this isn't something I necessarily agree with. I'm, I'm, I'm trying, but I find it fascinating. Well, well, what, what being the future of art? What, what exactly? A big shimmering, indeterminate, murky void of, of um, uh, in a way, what's represented in kind of, you know, the work of Rothko and Pollock and de Kooning and Klein okay. and, and um, Clifford Still and later Comerfield, people like Frankenthaler. Um, and uh, it's pure, the idea of a pure poetry or pure art for art's sake, that was kind of, that was what they, they thought was the answer, but they didn't feel it had anything to do with, um, uh, in a way it was just a kind of, it's very, it's very odd, but then that was the cultural zeitgeist, at the time. that was the era of the atomic bomb, you know, and um, uh, of um, Sartre and what have you. And like, and, and now, but nowadays kind of, again, kind of our public perceptions have shifted, the ways that we think about art has shifted and the what's commercially viable and commercially, you know, believable has shifted. You know, like, um, uh, it, it was the case that kind of like when Picasso, when Picasso first made Les Dames d'Avignon, his big, uh, you know, first Cubist painting, people didn't take it seriously. They thought it looked like a car. It looked more like the cartoons that were in the, the newspapers at the time, making fun of modernist paintings. Mm -hmm. People like um, um, the artist uh, Windsor McKay, you know, Little Nemo and, Nemo and Slumberland would always do like these parody comics of kind of like Cubist expression. That's what it looks like to them. And um, um, and it, it, it's just things shift all the time. It's it's, it's tricky. It, it, it's change occurs all the time in the art. And I think I think like that's that's the thing. Kind of like critique and also kind of making has to take into account the the um, uh, the 
the possibility for change within the art and transmit. But then that's the part of the resisting the same, um, resisting what could be seen, what, what you could rephrase as cliche. Uh, and, and the dance formulation of cliche, as I remember it, it is, what is a cliche? It's the, the, a familiar thing used in a familiar way to a familiar effect. Mm -hmm. am, am I off the track there? I mean, it's all, sounds a it, little it would have bit, to be all three, yeah. Yeah, that sounds a little bit, I mean, that doesn't sound a million miles away from what kind of um, Greenberg is, is sort of there. And, and, and again, when Dan says kind of like art has to resist cliche, I mean, what's he saying there? I mean, kind of, isn't there a teleology there? Kind of like the art has its own kind of, um, art is seeking its own kind of um, freedom or its own, or it's trying to define itself or it's in a period of consolidation. I believe this in a sense. This is where I see kind of this nexus of ideas happening between people like you, people like Dan, people like Greenberg, and all this other stuff. But I think there are like differences in sort of language and how we think and we approach kind of these mediums or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily disagree with uh, some of that framing. It's just that, well, I mean, my critique of Greenberg here, you know, it's more kind of generalized, uh, first of all, in the sense that, uh, again, like I doubt that even among the elites that were accepting Picasso at the time, or even around the time that Greenberg was writing, right? Because there was a transition, right? By the time that 1939 rolls around, Picasso was accepted, right? That That is now more or less a kind of like old guard, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and but uh, the point that I'm making this is, is- This is what keeps things moving though, Sean, with the fact that the high stuff always trails off into a kind of manner. Yeah, sure, sure. And, there, there, and there's, no, you know, there's no issue with that, but it's more so that, you know, the people championing it, it I don't necessarily uh, accept that they, that, you know, like his framing is one of, you know, it's kind of elitist in the sense where, you know, it's these oh, codes, it's, it's these codes that have to be decoded. And yet to me, like I, you know, when I look at like criticism historically, when I look at various art movements, when I look at just shit that people say today versus then, mm -hmm. like at any given time, you know, people are just talking a whole lot of fucking shit that has yeah. to do much more with their personal identities with where they wish to place themselves psychologically yeah, um, well, and, 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 and not necessarily, you know, reflective of their understanding of, of anything deeper. So, you know, that that's part of the critique, right? This kind of like Marx, this weird Marxist idealism, I don't really accept. And I don't accept that, you know, the, the granting of leisure time and even the granting of education will turn people uh, into, you know, perhaps in a baseline way, of course, they will understand more. But for some of these, you know, like topics, like art you know it, it, it's hard to say like i i think the best case scenario is if we have something valuable to say about the arts and it could like rub off on people you know well, that that that's, that's really that's, that's really benjamin, useful something that benjamin would say and benjamin had a lot of marxian thinking i mean like, i think you can have like marxian thoughts but not be a marxist per se I mean, is, yeah is, is, is i think art, i'm the same way yeah is that art is educative in that sense in that mm -hmm. you know and it's it's or, or he says that art does educate, but not again, not in the sense of a kind of political, um, in what it politically condones or on what have you. I, I think it, it's tricky, but like, you know, I, I think, I mean, I very much am kind of an elitist, I, I would say kind of personally, uh, but kind of it's, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a tricky thing. I mean, I don't think, yeah, I don't really, di I don't really, I don't really believe in kind of equality of outcomes. And there is a kind of like, I guess, like a Hobbesian streak in me where like, I mean, and you were alluding to kind of this competitive thing. Like this- Yeah, I'm, I'm not against, I'm not, I'm not against elitism in that sense. I'm saying that his, his elitist critique is one of 
there is all this stuff to be decoded and the elites are progressively doing it, which is why they accept Picasso. I don't accept that chronology. I think they're just reacting to their personal tastes, likes, dislikes, their identity structures. Oh my God, I could be pro this radical chic. So let me accept this new guy on the block. I think that's really what it always is most of the time, basically. Yeah, I, I think, well, well, certainly uh, you're right. You're right in the sense that kind of Green, Greenbergian does Greenberg does promote the idea of a historical consciousness of painting, mm -hmm. an enlightened historical consciousness of painting, um, and and like like you know it, it does come off in this. I mean, Patrick Heron too. This there's this aristocratic sort of um, elitist sort of quality to it. I, I mean, but I, I don't think I don't think the problems necessarily that Greenberg is suffering from here are kind of all altogether to do with um, marks really mm -hmm. i mean i, I mean I, the, the 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 kind of things you're talking about are, are really kind of ones of um sort of like can't really and it's can't who greenberg will return to in a big way later in his career i mean like and you know he contradicts himself essay to essay man this is the thing you know we're like, so like we're picking through this essay but mm -hmm. but can't you know is that legislative thing where you know he is trying to sort of basically create kind of like the, the rules that will correct art and get it all into this intelligible shape where we can say kind of you know what's what and you know there's there's the kitsch and there's art and the art that doesn't em, uh, em, embrace kind of um, um, uh, it, it embrace kind of the, the Greenbergian highway we're sort of destined to go the way of the dinosaurs there's like this Darwinian sort of element to it but um I, I think this this is tricky and and certainly you know I mean uh, it's, I mean, it, it's, it's funny as well, because so much of, again, like I was saying, like, late, um, like mid-century modernist sort of like, I mean, God, pop art and conceptualism is, is so hostile to Greenberg and he's mm -hmm. setting out to disprove all this stuff that you're talking about. And, and, and as you, you know, it's, it's a whole, it be, that becomes the whole intellectual chic of the time, actually. And I mean, I mean, Greenberg is not, this this is the, the thing kind of greenberg's kind of chicness and strangeness is not on the table right now and like even in it and in his time it's like what for the time it was chic it built up a lot of cultural resentment with people mm -hmm. as being this cultural imperialism who the fuck are you going around saying that you represent the high kind of um, uh, culture and you're the arbiters of xyz and this is kitsch but like um, uh, who do you think you are fucking um and and uh, 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 cultural imperialism, right? Um, and this, this is, in a way, the legacy of Greenberg now in art schools. I mean, if you mention Greenberg to like one of my teachers, like David Albertson, he would like give you a look like this. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, do you know what I mean? Like, but there, there, but other, but I think there is something now somehow subversive today to say, like, to believe in the idea of yes, yeah, yeah, some kind of like um, um, eclectic culture. I mean, the idea that like when an artist speaks or when a critic speaks that you know there might only be a select few of the people mm -hmm. who understand you yeah uh, yeah th this is something i think that kind of and that, that's not really going to change though and i mean we, no, you know no, like no. whatever you know it is what and, it is but and, and, and the desire to cover all bases kind of that's the that's the thing one should be kind of suspicious of because that's really yeah. what the tendency of everything is right now to these days to like you know um, collapsing sort of web-like systems of um, sort of meeting consumer demands, meeting people's it um, uh, 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 like, but 
so with, with Greenberg, it's the interest in sort of the idea of a, of a, of a, of a shall we say, a kind of, um, a kind of, that art had a, a destiny of to kind of define itself mm -hmm. and to uh, and 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 that but that this this would happen in historical time this whole thing in, in a sort of by a way of a Nietzschean way this thing was happening in a, in a big way over time and that this was the real sort of transcendental thing unlike Kantian reason that this mm -hmm. this whole kind of process is bigger than kind of you and I and it's really about finding those kind of um interstitial things that will kind of uh, mm -hmm. th those 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 um strange desolatory sort of unexplored spaces that will uh, expedite or accelerate the process into some kind of new zone like again like it's it, it, it's it's a pretty straightforward teleology and it, it does sound idealistic but the whole the whole appeal of it Again, it's the thing that sort of puts it at odds with our moment right now, like how it seems to go beyond indigenous and nativist sort of strains and all that sort of stuff. It seems to go beyond identity politics in a way. It seems to go beyond um, you know, the idea of sort of political fashions, but I mean, it doesn't totally get outside the whole problems of uh, um, you know, commerce and the gallery space and what have you, but it's, it's um, um, it, it, it's 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 um, uh, it, it's something that I think is sort of actually bound to come back more and more into aesthetic fashion. I mm. think I think people more and more are sort of um, um, are sort of uh, I, I think more and more there is an interest in a kind of a, a pure formalism as opposed to kind of the pseudo formalism we get so much online. I think people yeah. know that's not enough for critique. Yeah. I think people know that goes nowhere. I think, I mean, th this is the problem I think that you and I both have with kind of like internet critique and bullshit like that. It's, yeah. it's, it is just the same for the same old own sake. That's not fucking critique. That's not fucking anything. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, even if like, you know, it's got all the right um, dotted I's and crossed T's, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's, uh, it, it's something, you know, again, dead neighbor. And, and, you know, t touching on this formalism, uh, one thing that I think is very useful in, in Greenberg is uh, I came across this idea actually this morning um, when, when he talks about like medium uh, specificity, right? Because, yeah. you know, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. that and that also gel, gels very nicely with my own kind of, you know, artistic ideas because, you know, he would say something like if you have, you know, a medium such as oil painting, mm -hmm. well, there's specific advantages there. Perhaps there are also some disadvantages. Uh, you have to work with that reality, right? It's going to be different than with watercolors. They have their own advantages and disadvantages. If you're writing a poem and you know that historically and culturally and as a fact, you have an option to do a title and you refuse that, well, you are kind of, you know, neglecting a portion of the medium, right? You are neglecting an advantage for whatever reason, unless you have yeah. a very good reason for doing that. That's not to say that you can't have a poem without a title. I mean, you can. Right. Um, and it could even work. Right. You could even have a, a good reason for that. Right. An artistically justifiable reason. But generally speaking, you know, whatever a medium offers to you, there's a reason why. Right. You're going to do that medium. There's a reason why you would do like a great animation versus a great film. It would be very fucking weird to do an anime that, you know, that that has the chronology of like Woody Allen's Another Woman. 
right? Or like most Bergman <laughs> films, it's just like if you're gonna do some sort of high drama, you know, perhaps well, anime is not the best for well, it. Think of it in painterly terms, uh, a Salvador Dali painting done in a Cezannean style. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's it just doesn't yeah, work exactly. You know what I mean? It's so I mean, you, you get a very clear idea about what kind of the Greenbergian aesthetic is and why it's called um, informally abstractionism. You know, and like you were saying, kind of the, like uh, the sort of the essentialism of the materials and um, sort of how they should accentuate the, the surface, mm. and the shape of the stretch canvas and how it, it move away from representation towards the, the, the flatness, how that's what the spectator sees first, mm -hmm. abandoning a sort of Renaissance illusionism. Um, I think I mean, in retrospect, certainly some of his ideas about pictorialism seem um, seem kind of silly but again like from in his moment like it seemed all quite logical and straightforward you know that he thinks that kind of it flatness is is what painting's all about he thinks kind of he looks selectively at the history of art and he thinks well um there's a move towards surface and flatness so painting um is really going to become more and more flat kind of um, uh, the more and more modern it becomes as the purer it becomes it will become more and more kind of flat uh, surfaces and that's why how you get color field painting like people like Morris Lewis or Frankenthaler where just the color is just these huge canvases are spread so in such huge areas that the, the power almost dissipates they're like these huge kind of uh, mm -hmm. uh, very very odd things I mean I, I have arguments with painters all the time about the merits of the, the, this movement or that school of painting mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's endless no one ever fucking agrees um, <laughs> but um, he really did believe that this was the move forward I mean, and again, in retrospect, again, this seems like you know, a bias, like you're saying, like an aesthetic preference on his part. So, like, so he, uh, because you know, I mean, because, oh God, I mean, just look at the people who the the, the neo avant garde, which, which sort of begins right at the end of the of the abstract expressionist movement, with someone like Frank Stella, who is who is um, um who is making these paintings that are. It, it, it's kind of like they they're kind of schweikian they, they kind of they, they obey all greenbergian modernist precepts they emphasize surface flatness um, um shape of the canvas but they don't um but they don't actually deliver on any of the effects they don't actually they don't actually look function the way these paintings are supposed to they don't even look like paintings most of the time mm -hmm. so there's this weird sort of host sort of like hostility sort of disguised as a, do you know what I mean? Kind of this mm -hmm. um, uh, non-compliance that happen, happening with, with all these games where people are riffing on Greenbergianism and what have you, or Rauschenberg and um, Jasper Johns making paintings that were technically Greenbergian that incorporated imagery, iconography, consumer culture, detritus, quirkiness, um, you know, all this other stuff. But, mm. and, but technically they followed all the rules of green, you know, the surface, the shapes that were all emphasized, you know, the other, it, it begins to short circuit Greenbergian, um, you know, precepts, you know, kind of begins to challenge and probe them. Mm. Um, and yeah, like that, the rest is history, you know, but, but the, the, whole, the, whole, the whole thing that happens with the emergence of the neo-avant-garde is this derailing of the idea that the modern that the, the, the avant-garde can be resurrected and our Greenberg. That you know the role, you know, art can kind of seek out this purism that was started with um Matisse and Cezanne and Picasso 
and instead it's it's something else it's postmodernism mm. creeps up with them uh, so yeah it's the, the sort of mod neo-modernism killed mm. in its cradle um well i i think we uh covered enough of uh, uh greenberg uh, do you, you want to talk about satan's brew uh i i, yeah, we I first can, we, can, we yeah. can finish off um, um i think that like we've, we've, we've talked for a for a while but i think we can finish off talking talking about talking about satan's brew because that can i think that can line up with some of the stuff you were talking about nicely yeah um what, I, are, your, I, what, what are your impressions of it because i know it's a fucking it's a it's a strange film yeah. Um, so yeah, you were talking about it with Dan Linden on the uh, the Leviathan uh, um, yeah. uh, podcast that you guys did. And uh, so I uh, this uh, uh, Fast Binder film, um, I I think I saw only one other Fast Binder film, but that was like maybe like uh, over 10 years ago. I don't really remember. Um, so I, I watched this a couple of days ago and um I mean, I, I don't know. Uh, I, there were some moments I think that were humorous. I think like structurally there was some stuff that was interesting and other stuff that like didn't go far enough. Like early on, for example, when, you know, he, he kills uh, the prostitute that he sees uh, with the gun and he has like uh, his, um, uh, is that his brother or is that his his yeah, brother the, yeah, his, his brother you know hide the gun he hides it in a piece of furniture and then suddenly these people show up later well there, there, there's an interval of time that passes right before people come to repossess the furniture and enough time passes which is like a good writerly decision right where enough time passes in the film where you forgot that the gun was hidden right in the furniture um, but nothing really comes of it, right? They don't, they don't take out the, uh, they don't take out that piece of furniture and it ne it's never really revisited, right? So there's, there's no kind of like satisfaction to that kind of good early writerly choice and that kind of, you know, the time that passes. Um, I, I guess there's like some humor that's kind of funny. There was one scene where, where he's like, you know, calling for, he, he like, he's, he, he's calling up like Germanic men, right where you start thinking like okay is there something like you know possibly homosexual going on here right later on it's revealed that you know he yeah, thinks yeah. That, that that he's the or rather perhaps he's pretending that he's the reincarnation of the the poet uh stefan george so that he could you know get away with plagiarism or whatever um and you know in in, in that scene where he's asking for the germanic men the interaction yeah. that he has with that woman um it really kind of like it it says something about her psychology it says something about her kind of you know perhaps strength of character and there's this kind of like odd almost flirtation at the beginning which i think was was nicely done but those kind of moments to me were, were very rare i think most of it was just kind of very tiresome not 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 funny uh the the ending was kind of it reminded me a little bit of uh uh herzog's um port of call a uh, bad lieutenant film where the the ending is this kind of absurd thing where this this cop that is just like out of control for the entire film is suddenly like all the bad shit that he gets into it's reversed he's now celebrated he doesn't have to uh, speak to any kind of consequences and it's something that wouldn't probably happen in real life but it has some real world implications in the sense that well it's true that most cops don't get away with this level of improper behavior but generally cops do get away with a lot of improper behavior and even if you can't find one that would get away with this level of misbehavior 
as a force in general, they cumulatively get away with a whole lot of shit that they shouldn't get away with. That would be, you know, far worse than the net effect of this one cop's behavior. But I don't see the same kind of you know, if you want to call it a lesson or an anti-lesson, whatever, I don't see the same kind of thing happening in Satan's brew at the end. It's just this kind of over-the-top thing where this poet that seems to be a plagiarist and perhaps not even a good writer who has like some celebrity in this broke, he gets all these women back on his side again, um, which, you know, I, I, I could sort of understand what's being said, but it's also... Just broadly speaking, it's not really a lesson, right? It's more of an anti-lesson. And, you know, coming on the heels of everything that I just described, it just didn't gel for me in any kind of way. Maybe you could talk about the positives. Like what, like, what would you do like, to convince someone that it's, that it's actually worthwhile? How would, you, how would you approach this kind of critique? Or maybe even not approaching the critique, like how would you present the film? Well, you know, it's, 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 I, well, I didn't expect you to like it, to be perfectly honest, because, well, most people actually that I've talked to don't like it. It's peculiar and slightly embarrassing because I'm on my own on this respect. Even dedicated Fassbinder seems to not like it. But I really. You said that I, Peter Cleese, you, you said that Peter Cleese thought it was a great film? No, I'm um, my friend Peter Stedman. That's a different. Oh, different oh I, those are, okay. But like, I'm, um, yeah, it's, um, um, I don't know what it is. I'm, um, maybe it's, uh, it's, uh, uh, certain, I've, certainly when you read the reviews as well people seem to have the same um, uh, the same problems that you have with it that kind of it, it generally feels a bit kind of aimless and um, uh, sort of inscrutable sense of humor and, and what have you um, I can always say that you know to me from the outset this just this just seems like a surreal slapstick comedy it's a situation comedy and it is i mean it is that right it's 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 best to think about it in terms of like a monty python film really and but it's about um uh uh an, an artist a writer in sort of a, a creative crisis we don't know actually whether he's good or not we do see that he unknowingly perhaps plagiarizes stefan gerger after which he has a crisis and sort of convinces himself somehow that he's this reincarnation mm -hmm. of stefan gerger it really is kind of like the archetypical it's like the stereotypical archetypical story of like the the german like writer kind of like it's uh, and walter kranz himself is almost like the perfect image of kind of the torment tormented angst ridden um german author even down to his haircut and even his life it's like a it's like a just a whole um rig like um mix of different um tropes and cliches from like um german literature and what have you and like uh, uh, he's he's got a fucking retarded brother who like mm -hmm. tries to like who like plays with flies on the mm -hmm. window all the time just such amazing lines like he tries to fuck his flies without success so far i'm sure mm -hmm. and and his and and his wife who's kind of like i'm um, uh, sexually unsatisfied and frumpy and like i'm um, a uh, and uh, but 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 how he undergoes all these different sort of metamorphoses in this crisis. It's, it's interesting. You know, there's, there's, a well, which, which, which metamorphoses? Cause I think that's one of my main problems with the film. There's not really much that happens. I don't think with the character, but if you see it, metamorphoses well, like what? Well, there's this sort of sense in which he's playing with sort of the idea of himself as a political artist. And there's certainly all this, this sense of kind of like, you know, the whole baggage of, you know, the shadow of um, national socialism and the whole legacy of um, um, German history. And it's sort of, it's you know the, the whole kind of um double bind kind of it's a post-war german art scene but um and i mean that's everywhere and like fascism is a big theme of the of the 
the story, I think. But um, what were we talking about? Oh yeah, of, of his transformations. Yeah, well, uh, he, he tries to turn himself into this kind of Nietzschean master of this woman and kind of like um, uh, sort of present himself as this sort of mysterious master. Uh, other times he kind of, he, he sort of toys with the idea of being a homosexual. Um, um, uh, there's the whole kind of weirdly stagey Grand Guignol scene where he sort of, uh, breaks into a woman's house and sort of like robs her daylight robbery kind of like but she's mm. turned on by it and like it feels like it, it it feels camp and surreal and then like it, it goes away and it, and I mean we can talk about the ending but I think the whole thing is like a sort of bizarre um slightly surreal kind of like um almost like story about like a Faustian German literary figure kind of in our modern age I mean uh, there's 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 a there's a press release. By, well, what, um, what, what, what is the bargain that he makes though in that kind of analogy? Like what, like what do you think happens well, well, there? Well, let me read this press release that that um, Fassbinder wrote for the film, which he wrote for like the um, just like this small pamphlet. He said because this is revealing. He said Walter Kranz is a man who comes from the petty bourgeoisie. Um, we know this from the film, who has had success through literature and in the course of time became politically active, whether out of sincerity or whether he joined because it was fashionable. And now he takes a step. He returns to the middle class model of mode of behavior, even if the middle class has become fascist. This seems quite logical to me. How can a man like Kranz, an artist, live in any other way except the one society prescribes for him? And the way he lives is completely normal, but taken to the extreme. So really, it's a bizarre situation comedy about, you know, uh, the artist, but it's, it's a kind of heightened, um, uh, like almost like, like Arto is quoted at the beginning of it. It's like this, this strange kind of frothing at the mouth kind of um, uh, film where kind of it, it kind of lays this sort of thing bare kind of where the artist is kind of schizoid. He's kind of, he's living in this world which is kind of trying to naturalize and tame him. And there's the whole, it creates a culture of masochism, expectation of diminishing returns, um, you, you know, um, self-doubt and what have you. This is what, you know, we see all this play out on the screen in front of us with like, and we see like uh, uh, how, you know, I think sex is, and, and like, you know, relations and the whole idea of sort of, um, you know, the masculine sort of um, artist, but also the middle-class artist, the bourgeois artist, the avant-garde artist, the political artist, the queer artist, the, um, um, uh, what, I mean, these are all, these all become the kind of the, the costumes that he desperately tries on like, like a drag act and it, none mm -hmm. of them fit. And then at the end, kind of what you're left with is something quite odd and like uh, kind of like a, a, a weird pantomime. All the characters who are dead leap up off the floor and start laughing. And it's, it's the weirdness, it's the kind of surrealness of like hearing a laugh in the next room, and, but it's a soundtrack on the TV. Uh, all, all, you, you know, all you've been watching is kind of, uh, it, it is very curious. And it's a very mm. weird kind of um, note to end the film on. But I mean, appropriate in light of the references to our toe. Um, uh, but I mean, although not as surreal, of course, it, it owes a lot to Brecht, obviously. Um, but, but also I, I think, um, um, to uh, uh i think um you know because i recently i've been writing and fassbinder's satansburg has been on my mind and like um uh, especially especially like um um the the scenes where like he, he turns around to like his wife and his brother and he's like uh, he, he reads them poetry he's it's like um um 
and he's like, what, what, what did you say? He's like, a, a, a cheer, a pawed, and they sort of squawk at him like parrots. There's like all, all this other times, like in, in the, the film where people kind of squawk or shriek at one another, kind of money, money, kind of like, I'm a, yeah. like a out, out, like a, like it's, 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 yeah, it's like kind of a weird, very weird kind of primitive kind of thing like a, a film but but it has this it, i think it does have like funny insights too it's not just a kind of a, a I, th I think there's some remember like near the end where like the, the 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 fan that he meets that he you know tries to sort of like take I as a kind of that you know mistress at the end when she rejects him right and she's like oh yeah. you're weak you're just you're, you're you're just like me right yeah. and uh and then you know she she says something like um you know like and to think that someone like me you know could be deceived by someone like you right where she's kind of you know inflating herself just like he's been inflating himself and yeah, you, know, yeah. you you as the viewer know that both of them are just delusional right in terms of like their own self-worth right uh it, well, yeah. not their not their self not their self-worth but in terms of he's like a masochist he's a yeah. masochist and she's a masochist too yeah, but, 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 but in, ter in, ter in terms of like the worth that society would naturally give them, you notice that, for example, like in some like Woody Allen movies, like oftentimes like Woody would like, like he would try to make a woman into like, uh, you know, like if he tries to make like really like sexually undesirable, he gives her certain mm. qualities and makes her kind of like extra nerdy. And I feel like mm. she got the same kind of qualities but also on another level, um, like so, like you, you read that description uh, that the press release that Fassbender released, and uh, you know he, he characterizes all this as you know a man, you know being normal perhaps is normal, but can't you know sort of uh, uh, is not allowed to express his true normalcy. Well, to me, when I was uh, watching it, I think it's kind of the the opposite, right? Not only is there a lack of normalcy, but if you contrast it with a film like. Uh, Scorsese's uh, After Hours, it's not that you have necessarily the same kind of absurdist situation. It's also an absurdist situation in, in, in After Hours, where it's much more so like a Kafka-esque absurdist situation. Yeah. And the reason yeah. why that film works on different levels, like you, you could even like, you could even like take a girl on a date to watch that film because it, it works even on that level because, um, especially early on, you know, you, you have uh, characters that are kind of like sitting around with each other and they're clearly, you know, they're clearly flirting. The flirting mm -hmm. is, is, is well-written. We see lots of, on the one hand, sexual tension, which means that, and the reason why it's tension is it could go one way or it could break the other direction, right? And you're sort of, you're starting to root for this character, the protagonist, who is also not even necessarily all that likable because as these situations unfold you see him like he clearly wants to have sex with like the different women that he comes across but they're also increasingly weirder and weirder and you start seeing these calculations in his head like i know i want to fuck these girls but is it really worth it right because they're just insane right and it seems like i'm gonna have to deal with a lot of shit that i just don't want to deal with i want to go home and now i can't right and you don't have you know any real space i don't think in Sane's brew where you get a lot of this kind of you know natural like really recognizably human-like development this kind of you know um you know upping the ante in terms of flirtation you don't get this kind of gradual and folding and you don't get these like mental machinations you start with a guy that's a like completely abnormal he 
goes like through. Among, through. Uh, okay. But the, the, the thing about Woody Allen, though, is he's, he's really sort of trying to make films that are kind of like Bergman-esque or, or, or sort of like Ibsen-esque, but with, but with kind of like uh, Jewish or kind of like uh, sort of like Marxist. Well, what, what, what about the Scorsese example, since that was like the, the bulk of it? Like, do, like do, I mean, did you see well, the connection? Like, do you know that film, by the way, or, or what? No, I, I'm, wait, what film was it again? After Hours by Scorsese. No, again, that's, that's one I've neglected to, to watch, I'm, I'm afraid. But, um, um, it's very different from but, a lot of his movies. Like, I'd really recommend it, but it's also a great film. Good shout. I'll, I'll check it out, man. I, I, I just think that kind of like, you know, I think Satan's Brew is a kind of cartoon, but I think mm -hmm. it's it's like, it's it's a very, very interesting cartoon in, in, in the sense, I mean, I mean just like, um, in the sense, like, um, I just think it's um, like, a, that there is something kind of anarchic about it. Uh, that I, I don't I don't think it's like whim it's like a whimsical kind of cartoonishness and, you know these yeah, people not, are yeah. real people with like inner worlds that I'm kind of like ooh the character of, of um, Walter Kranz who is he? he he's he's more like uh you know he, again he's more like a kind of um, a sort of a, a harlequin figure here he or, or like um the, these are kind of like this is like a comedia dell'arte again which yeah and the way that at the end they'll jump up ha ah, ha ha we're not dead you know it's you know it's like again this is um part of it i think that reinforces that um it, it, it's sort of frustrating and alienating in a way but i i i mean maybe i think it's just the it's like i, I see it as part of the overall very german sense of humor too uh I, I, I don't know. Like I'm, a, I don't know what else I could say about the film. I think I'm, um, I think uh, on, I mean on the level of like formalism, in, in terms of like Fassbinder. I, you know, Fassbinder is odd because he has a very pedestrian kind of style. I mean, mostly they're like TV level productions in terms of the budget and the equipment. So there's this almost kind of very um, uh, kitchen, not 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 kitchen sink because that's 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 kind of too specific. But it's it's very. Um, um, a pedestrian very kind of like um no style style the boilerplate um, um would you say it's better than his other films or or what you mean overall or in terms of like how it's made well it, it didn't seem like in general you were like a, a fan of his films when you had that conversation with uh, dan linden so i'm, well, I'm just I'm like... no I'm, I'm, i really like fassbinder film oh, okay. yeah I, I i really i mean um Films to watch from him be um, uh, Annie Fear Eats the Soul, Fox and His Friends. Um, I've got many others that I'm, I'm suddenly blank on. Um, a Year of Thirteen Moons. The, the, these were very good films, and like, and a lot of them, he's kind of like exploring sort of ideas, sort of melodrama in a way. He's exploring mm -hmm. kind of character relationships, and there's lots of very strong character relationships. Mm -hmm. This is a very different film, kind of altogether from those sort of films. Um, but but I think and and for that reason, like it, it, I, I think it, it it adds to the fact that people just can't comprehend like you know, what, what what the fuck it's up to. Um, yeah. I look at it. What, what tell you what? When I look at that film, I look at Walter Kranz and I go, oh, ha, ha, it's like a weird nightmare I would have, kind of like in a in a novel mm -hmm. about myself." You know, kind of like um, uh, like I, I I read like a German novel, like I read a Thomas Mann novel, and I go to sleep one night, and I wake up in the dream where I have some fat German wife and some like and some brother, like something out of um um, uh, um who's the chap who wrote that that novel, um, Population um, 12, 12, 30. 
Jim Thompson, like a like a retarded brother out of a Jim Thompson novel. And uh, I have a like I'm a, and my publishers are like banging at the door, like where's the new novel? And you look at the novel, and it's not one you've written. It's run by one by Stefan Gierger. And you go and you look in the mirror and like, oh fuck, I'm Stefan Gierger. Like yeah, it's it's this yeah, fever fever dream, what have you. I mean, I I don't like I'm um like it's. It, I mean, I, I, I quite like its kind of dry sort of sense of humor. I mean, there are just some really funny fucking lines from the film too. I think it's 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 witty as well. Yeah, there, 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 there was one line there, I, I wanted there, to there, highlight. Yeah, there, there was one I, line. Uh, I really do think every scene has something really like some really witty like lines in it, kind of where people are talking to one another. Like um, like uh, what 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 was it? What did he say? Um, it was something like. Uh, leave. Wait, what was it? Oh, uh, uh, ha leave speaking to those predestined to speak. Right, I thought that was a great line. There, there's also one where you were talking about where she was like, "How could I ever follow you?" And he, he says something on the lines of kind of, "This is the finest form of humiliation to expose one to mm -hmm. oneself to an inferior." And yeah. um, um, I'm just trying to find some other some other lines from it. I don't because I would feel guilty about it. Yeah, my time will come. No one understands me. I've decided to change my life. Go work in a factory. Maybe that will cure you. I'll have a suit made to measure. That's it. Yeah, he, he, he keeps doing that uh, Rilke line, right? Um, uh, you know, I, I, I must change my life, right? Again and again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, by the way, I, I'm not sure if you, uh, what, what, how you are on time, but um, I mean, I have some other things written down. Uh, NFTs, if they're a topic of interest to you, um, I also will watch your uh, video on your on your drawings if you want to talk about that, um, or we could call uh, oh the balkanization of the arts, which we sort of alluded to but didn't really uh, touch on. If anything, well, let's let's try let's try and quickly run run through them. Let's try and quickly run through as much as of, of, it, of it as we can. Right. Like give ourselves like forty minutes or so, like left to, to go. Okay. All right. All right. So, so first, like the balkanization, does it does it uh, at all worry you? Like when you see stuff like, you know, obviously Patreon on some level is going to be useful for artists. Like I'm eventually going to uh, start a Patreon, like whatever. Um, on the other hand, uh, I, I am very nervous about the fact that everybody seems to now have some sort of outlet for their extremely niche proclivities you know what i mean like if you want to like you know how you know how you have those like jokes like um like when people come out come out as trans and people want to make fun of them and be like well i want to come out as an attack helicopter or some shit like they have a subreddit de dedicated specifically to finding people that make these like that specific kind of anti-trans joke like coming out as a uh and specifically it's in the structure of coming out as an attack helicopter or some kind of animal or something like that uh similarly like you you want any kind of pod podcast and any kind of topic any kind of like you know aesthetic you want it to be serious you want it to have tons of jokes you want this you want that there's going to be something out there spoon feeding that to you and telling you in exchange for five dollars a month i could give you like an an infinite supply of this kind of shit um you know like uh, th th that that kind of like really worries me because human beings especially in a time when they're getting more and more 
you know, perhaps leisure is not the right word, but in general, you're getting more of something. And, you know, a century from now, you're going to get even more of things. Uh, mm-hmm. Human beings are not very good at cutting off the spigot, right? If they're really moved by some sort of personal fixation, they're just going to go for it. And I, I think stuff like Patreon and just the, you know, uh, universality of like all, all these like little things you could latch onto anytime you feel like, you know, that really kind of uh, 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 drives people to, you know, uh, in many cases, act out their, their worst instincts. And I, I include myself like in that category, right, which is why I say stuff like I have to be very careful about what I'm allowing into my life because I could easily just go into any kind of fucking direction. I could easily find a personal fixation or preoccupation of mine because I have so many to begin with and I could find something to scratch that itch and avoiding that scratching is, is, is paramount to me. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, <clears throat> I think, well, well the, the, way, the way I see it is... Well, you know, I mean, the, the the name of my podcast is 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 against nature, and like, I'm I'm a big I'm a big admirer of um, um, we smalls and kind of the the whole kind of synthetic culture of um, bohemianism and flanerism that was that was sort of coming up around around the time of kind of um, the the decadent symbolist movement, the literary movement in France, mm-hmm. um, the the idea of cosmopolitanism. And the idea that kind of you know um, you can sort of go into your own synthetic world. I mean, the problem with Wiesmann, however, was that he was a Catholic, and you know he had all kinds of complicated feelings about um, uh, this, this, you know, um, fear of icons, other religions, what have you. Uh, I like the idea of sort of um, almost in a hermit-like way, sort of like um, um, sort of being on kind of my mountaintop and kind of like looking down and sort of like being at a bit of a distance or sort of a Calvinist, keeping a Calvinist sort of distance from, from sort of mass culture. And I mean, I mean, the, the, it, to, to the limits of kind of like, um, uh, what, you know, what's convenient or what's some um, sort of expedient. I, I think, you know, ov- obviously there, there's an anxi- anxiety of not getting, um, you know, like uh, falling into a certain kind of thing, or you know, I, I, I don't know. Like, I just think, you know, definitely. Uh, I mean, you talk about the balkanization of the arts. I, I think for, for me, for me, the real issue has always been um, institutionalization and sort of managerial culture and the managerial class, and with um, the whole problem of, of of that really, kind of everything being PR and market research, endless, endless shit like that. I mean, like uh, that. I'm allergic to that in a way mm-hmm. that I never wanted to like, uh, you know, I, I, I can't even, maybe, I mean, I, I kind of fess up to that being a, a kind of personal failing on my part. I don't have the facility to deal with kind of the, the, the you know, the, all, all, all the bullshit that comes with, you know, yeah. um, you know, publicity and PR and sort of yeah. networking and what have you. Yeah. Um, so I, I just choose not to participate like reflexively, you know, kind of what me help most people who want to be artists do. That's what they end up doing. They don't end up doing, you know, becoming professional. They just kind of, you know, do something else. Yeah. But kind of st- but so, but still there's, there's the whole problem of sanctioned art, right? Mm. Authenticity, you know, we can all kind of be skeptical about authenticity, what authenticity is. It's not like any of us can throw out the baby with the bathwater in our 
actual practice or our lives or our making and it's not like anyone's going to say or do anything to get rid of it as a cultural phenomenon authenticity is part of our lives and the fact is that being successful or being um, you know a time-serving tenured member of an institution or a certain class kind of or you know being published here being with these people confirms legitimacy on you gives you power gives you yeah, and that's what we want really um mm. at the end of the day we wouldn't like a bit of power um the, the the benefit though of not having power and being outside of it though is that power doesn't corrupt you <laughs> you know there's no there's no poison chalice but the whole then problem then becomes how do you aim for authenticity from the already the the point of view where everyone looks at you like as an amateur or whatever you know like the whole question then becomes you know like what do you you know how do you aim for i mean what i talk about in my practice personally Alex, is i talk about aiming for amateurism I mean, what does it mean for a, for a professional to aim for amateurism? What does it mean for an amateur to aim for amateurism? Um, does it mean re-emerging uh, from a certain kind of, you know, authenticity into a new kind of thing or, or, or not? You know, it, it's, um, it's, it raises up, but, but then that's the problems now. And that's the problem. The institution confers power and authenticity. And mm. it's, it's something that kind of like, you know, it, it's, it's part of the whole like rat race of that kind of world. It's the, you know, and it's, you know, what, what, what does one do about, not everything produced by that world is extant trash, just as the same as not everything produced outside of it is extant, pure, or, you know, whatever, or unsullied, or innocent of derogations, vice, or what have you. It, 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 um, um, it, it, I mean, this is why I think something like a historical consciousness is important, or a sort of a kind of autodidacticism then, if we, you know, like, because, I mean, uh, that's an elite idea of culture, but I don't think, like we were talking about earlier in the conversation, I don't think it is kind of necessarily, um, I, I think it can be a democratic thing. I think, you know, mm -hmm. the, the idea is that kind of, it, it gives one the freedom to make one's own judgments, one's own, to form one's own personal taste more freely, to become involved in uh, an autodidactic kind of journey with art where you are kind of, you're, you know, you're, you're considering it, you're, you're, you're learning from it, you're curious about it, you learn more, and you experience this sort of thing as a historical sort of narrative, you experience it because it, it builds itself that way. Mm. I, think that's, I think that's what's important, and that's what's really the important thing in the face of what we see now, which is, you know, monoculture, um, you know, like balkanization or what have you, it is to kind of talk about sort of like hold up a kind of an idea of a, a high culture which is here yeah, um um which is um historical which kind of like ha has is a kind of canon you know and, mm -hmm. and that is kind of what's going hand in hand with what's you know happening now with this dumbing down it's a kind of a slow dissolving of kind of the canon like oh was this person really that great like um uh, uh does it really matter kind of if they were great for their time in our mm -hmm. own time now isn't picasso a bit you know like, like does he look like a misogynistic monster and anyway mm -hmm. um, futurism looks much more cool to me a 21st century you know um, teenager you know that looks much more you know, uh, mm -hmm. you know do you know what i mean kind of it's very easy to make aesthetic judgments and it's can be capricious because you can do it instantly and yeah. like you know i have my opinion about this painting i don't have to ever look at it again mm -hmm. kind of yeah 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 
Um, but well, since we have limited time, let's uh, let, let's just run uh, quickly to your uh, your drawing. So you uploaded, um, I think, in the last. Oh, wait, first, but first, before we get to the drawings, though, like you you, you talked about um, NFTs. Oh yeah, and you know we we have these things like CryptoPunk and um, uh, yeah. What, what, what's, what's the other thing? Um, uh, MeBits is the second. And all this stuff thing. Uh, th this, yeah, th this is a thing that is kind of going to be. Uh, a, a, uh, I think this is going to be a, a more and more common thing in kind yeah. of the, 100%. the Kunstvel, at least the sort of the gallery. Well, I mean, there are stories now appearing in sort of the Telegraph and stuff about record auction sales of crypto mm -hmm. punk JPEGs and all this sort. Of, you know, Non-FTs are very interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm, I won't pretend to be an expert on them at all but the idea you, of a you said of, none of them are interesting i did i say that no no yeah. i find them interesting as well oh, you do find them interesting, I find okay. them interesting. yeah i won't pretend to know anything about them i mean do, do, i mean i don't find it really intriguing as you know art. Yeah. i mean but as a cultural phenomenon it's certainly interesting yeah that's the way seems, that i'm approaching it yeah yeah i think it's it's a kind of you know it's it, anything kind of permissible may no longer may no longer be avoidable in that sense you know mm. if, if stuff like that is gonna you know, break the prices it's gonna we're gonna see it a lot more in in places like Sotheby's and, and what have you I mean it, it, in a way it's kind of it's quite quite kind of trendy and stylish now like or it has kind of a chic sort of thing about it but it, it may very well be something again I can't pretend uh, to, to have any expert knowledge on this but uh, it, it, very much what nfts will become or their significance i i don't think is is yet clear now even it's like um, uh, it's yeah i i i agree it's hard it, it's hard to make these kinds of uh, predictions but i will make the following prediction i agree with you that you know uh nfts and things like them will stay in the future and you know if you just think about like just ordinary human proclivities that's kind of um you know it feels kind of ne inevitable in that sense because so just to give a little bit of background you mentioned crypto punks They're, the company that developed them uh, larva labs uh, i believe mm -hmm. they were developed in 2017 uh, and they have only started, you know, uh, uh, reaching their, you know, true, well, I don't want to say true, you know, fundamentally, who knows what they're worth, but the, the market valuation of CryptoPunks, right? Some of the rarest ones, uh, you know, they, they sell something for like, you know, sometimes like I think hundreds of, of Ether, right? And each Ether as of now is a little bit over $2,000. Um, and so the way that this works is, so we had the CryptoPunks in 2017, and the reason why they're given, you know, any kind of value is it's basically like a kind of scarcity, and it's like parameters built upon scarcity. So uh, if you mint an NFT, uh, it's first of all, it's a one of a kind, right? There's never going to be an NFT just uh, like it. You put it, uh, you know, well, right now it's mostly an Ethereum blockchain, theoretically, you know, the they probably have like Binance chain NFTs also at this point. I don't, I haven't re really looked into that, but um, like, it's interesting because when, when you look at the sort of, you know, parameter optimization, so most NFTs that are crypto punks, uh, they are human beings, right? But a certain sub percentage of them are, you know, they could be like in the form of like uh, some sort of alien or me bits is the new one that Larva Labs released uh, sometimes like in the yeah. form of like a pig or something. Yeah. And that is, you know, yeah. one way that you could optimize for scarcity. 
you know, another one is, oh, does this, you know, JPEG character have a gold chain? Yes or no. If the answer is yes, that also adds to the scarcity. You might have, you know, something where only like 0.02%, you know, of CryptoPunks or MeBits have a certain parameter. And I, I think part of the reason why this emerged is, you know, it might have something to do with the cultural assumptions that allowed you know, more kind of abstract art in the kind of, you know, uh, Pollock sense, right? Or in the, um, you know, uh, like in that vein, right? Where people are like, okay, well, if we're sort of democratizing art in this way, and we are uh, uh, telling you that this Pollock is valuable because, you know, look, 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 look at what's happening at this part of the canvas, and this squiggle is different from this other side, you know, People are just looking at that and saying, well, let's just optimize things in a way that we could even understand even better. Let's just run this kind of essentially a, a statistical model here. And we're going to say that this has this valuation because, you know, it's it, it's one of like five crypto punks that has the following, you know, little asset. Right. Um, and. You know, it, it, it's not surprising in that sense, like when you open up the floodgates, as it were, with something like abstract expressionism, which itself is, you know, the, the value seems kind of abstract. You're going to have tons of like geeky types, right, that aren't even in the art world saying, well, if you're going to, you know, say that this is valuable to us, we are now going to do this from our perspective, right, from a statistical model. And we're going to, you know, throw the same thing back at you, right, and it's going to accumulate its own value. Um, and I, I feel like, you know, uh, people that are in, you know, abstract art, you know, very seriously, or like, you know, abstract artists, for example, they wouldn't be able to come up with some sort of reason to to rebut you know this other kind of like theory of valuation that's emerging and that's based essentially on you know little more than math and even beyond math though you you have this kind of you know th this desire among human beings to just you know sort of peacock right and just to kind of showboat where you know uh, they have like this other project the central land where eventually you're probably going to have a situation where you buy up land you know in the central land which is you know all kind of like digital land or whatever which goes for pretty expensive valuations now you could turn that into a room you could put all your nfts in that room you could have some sort of avatar nft that represents you like a, a crypto punk or a me bit or whatever and you could invite people in your room right you can like check out my fucking nfts i i bought this for 15 eth i bought this for 100 eth or i bought this for half an eth and now it's worth 200 eth right and and you know because human beings have that desire, you know, kind of like forevermore until, you know, we're no longer recognizably human. Um, I think this kind of thing is going to just keep growing. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, there's still a lot to, for, for, to, to learn about blockchain and um, cryptocurrency and what have you and NFTs and what. And I certainly, you know, they're, they're going to continue to be, I think they're going to be more and more prevalent and kind of the, the art world, art market anyway. I mean, yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd have no problem calling them art. You know, I don't see any pressing need to not to sort of define them against art. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I think, you know, personally, my interests are quite traditional in this respect, kind of in the Greenbergian formula sense, like in design and what have you, but also in the unique touch of the artist. So the, the handcrafted value of the work. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, I think the kind of, you know, within the scheme of that the kind of this art exists in kind of this is all about kind of this all comes from a kind of um formulation of kind of art and aesthetics that really is like you know again opposed to greenbergianism and opposed to kind of those ideas of handcrafted values 
And um, well, so, it's, it's, yeah. it's handcrafted perhaps in some way, right? You know, like for example, Marcel Duchamp had like his like you know his little fucking contraptions that would like create art after enough time, you know, by like an automatic process. Um, no, ready-mades. Um, I think ready-mades is different, though. I think... Uh, well, 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 not, 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 not the ready-mades, though. I, I just I mean, mean handcrafted. I just mean I just mean the actual kind of, like, touch of the art. I mean, minimalism, um, it was it was manufactured in, like, what the sculptures were manufactured in factories, but they have they're sleek surfaces, you know, there's no brush strokes. You know, it, that, that's what I mean. You know, minimalists were very sceptical, you know, kind of like, we talk about how sublime brush strokes are, but it's just, like, greasy lard. I mean, like, why mm -hmm. does it, you know... The, you know, so it's it's this skepticism about the value that kind of these this this stuff holds kind of as, as art. You know, yeah. the way that we talk about sort of the brush strokes and paintings, minimalists said this was the way that people talked about handcrafted Italian leather. It's really no different, you know, like uh, so you know, this is you know, I you one sees the discontinuity between a certain kind of modernist art and that kind of that kind of art as well. And you know, you need to take that into and, and yeah, evaluations aesthetically in this sense are difficult. I mean, postmodern art is difficult in that way. If you were to ask if painting is dead, uh, and someone says, you know, no, I mean, and you ask, well, okay, give me a good example of a living painter who's really, really good. You know, and, and if they were to say, you know, uh, you know, Gerhard Richter, he's really good, well, that'd be a very weird choice to say, because a lot of Gerhard Richter's paintings are about how painting is dead. Or, or rather, are, are about kind of painting being displaced by the camera. It, it, you know, he just paintings of photographs of paintings uh, and what have you. So, you know, it's a weird, do you know what I mean? It's like, he's definitely a good painter uh, and definitely a kind of um, a really great artist, but he's, it's a difficult thing to say they're good paintings when the paintings kind of, um, a lot of what they do sets out to kind of undermine kind of uh, certain things or kind of argue with certain things. Yeah, they, this is the thing, I mean, uh, it, 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 you know, I, I, in a way, kind of, I'm drawn much more to kind of, you know, a traditionalist kind of like mm -hmm. art, where kind of, you know, you look at it and there's kind of like, uh, there's an interesting manipulated surface and kind of like a strong sense of design and like color and what, and that, that's kind of what I think that, that that's, that's, that's quite my, my traditional kind of like, mm -hmm. um, modernist is, um, bias, but yeah, um, what what we uh we, we, we want to talk about my drawings um, oh yeah so, so so the drawings that you uploaded i i i guess uh, just like frame this a little bit uh the way that i would um you know from my perspective what i would describe what you're doing and you could uh, respond to this after uh i assume that if you're going to make you know abstract drawings uh you you know you've probably spent a long time studying uh abstract art you've seen things that happen in terms of you know, for example, how lines get drawn or painted, uh, the relationship, you know, uh, between uh, space and lines and uh, the patterns uh, in that regard that you've seen in the past. And now you're saying, okay, perhaps there are some, you know, spatial problems, let's call them. There's uh, other kinds of artistic problems. And, you know, uh, here you go, you know, you are responding to things that you've seen in the, in the past and you're trying to, you know, uh, 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 construct some kind of response to that, right? And this is why it's called, you know, uh, abstract in that sense, right? You've, you've sort of, you know, uh, put this into your brain over a long enough period of time. And now these things that look like, you know, uh, uh, code language to everybody else, to you, you know, you uh, you sort of uh, have a, a sense of what you're doing in terms of 
why this line belongs here, why you have X amount of space there, why mm. this, you know, collage is sort of cut off and added to in some sense. Like, is that a fair assessment of what your thinking process is as you're doing these? Yeah, um, well, there's, um, uh, in, in a certain way, there's, there's a kind of, um, there's a kind of, again, coming back to that word, automatism going on. Mm -hmm. where you know it, one, one almost aims for this sometimes where you get so involved in the work you kind of just kind of get uh, pulled along by it and you're just you're, you're making you're making choices um almost intuitively that's 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 the sort of ideal condition a lot of the time it isn't that a lot of the time it is kind of quite calculating kind of like ooh, does this work does this not work um you know trying this and going what if i did this but generally there is the sense that you know if i do something or if i make uh, or if i put a mark in an area or um you know remove something from an area that it's you know for a purpose because i feel like something isn't right or i feel that something needs to go there or something needs to you know not be there mm. or something has to you know it, it it takes that sort of um thing and what we're kind of everything follows on one from another kind of um, um it, where things are adjusted one to another too and that that's that's the that's the benefit of working um sort of with with the with the drawings but also kind of in a in an abstract way i suppose and it, it, it abstract is abstract does feel it's it, you know it's a pejorative word but it's um, um yeah I, th I think it, it is important in a way I, I do like the integrity of a word like abstract because um because i like the idea of kind of abstraction i suppose i like the idea that um of, of, of abstraction but it, it, you know, the painters I talk to, the abstract painters I talk to, and the abstract artists I talk to, we kind of, we talk about this a lot, we kind of talk about kind of, um, um, uh, abstraction, when you think about it, kind of, most abstract art, and a lot of kind of kitschy abstract art nowadays, is kind of geometric art, you know what I mean? It's kind of like grids, and mm -hmm. um, lots of boxy geometric stuff, and in, in, what, in what way are grids really abstract? You know, in what way are squares really abstract you know it's like a lot of the time kind of my kind of um boredom with some abstract art is like it doesn't get kind of um it doesn't get its hands dirty it tries to be too iconic or it tries to be too um tasteful too ornament um not ornamental in a way because you know ornament would imply a certain kind of um involvement it, 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 uh, it, it, there's, a, there's a kind of coffee shop abstract art that you see a lot, like in, in like kitsch abstract, you know what I mean? Like where you go in like Starbucks and there's like tasteful sort of slight monochrome, like sort of splats, I mean, sort of, sort of maybe resembling the work of um, um, the um, materialist or the Cobra art movement or something like that. But, you know, I, for me, kind of like abstract art is, is simply ones that find are looking for new compositions and looking like for new ways to organize things in painting new ways to put actually make paintings you know to actually make them not not to have them come up with new ideas not to rack your brains with high thoughts about what you want to say or what you want to convey but just to make the thing differently that's where the poesis comes in for the for the painting because you know like an abstract painting you know how do you where do you start the painting you know, and, and what, then when do you continue? You know, kind of, th this is the thing. And I like the idea of a paint of a, like the drawings don't necessarily have a beginning or an end. 
their their drawings that are torn up and re put together hans arp used to do this kind of during the sort of the the post-war um dadaist um, movement in france sort of tearing drawings up and putting them back together um but then um sort of playing with the edge of it too i mean like the, the, you know i i I've, sometimes i talk with mark for um about the pictures I, I he comes into my house and i put them on the wall and we discuss them and what have you and derma and like we're, we're always talking about the the relation to the wall and the fact that you know in my experience so often drawings uh, you know drawings are like the 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 unfortunate sort of stepbrother of paintings do you know in, in a way like my background really is as an illustrator kind of that's mm -hmm. my i i'm i'm a, i'm a much more of a draftsman than i than i'm a painter and still with painting I, there's a fumbling quality and I, I try too often to impose the kind of um what i know as a draftsman onto painting and it you know it, 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 it can take you far but the the but with drawing very often kind of there's a sense that it's preparatory you know it's you know it's something um, um that leads you up to a painting or whatever like, and when you put and when you see drawings on the wall next to paintings and galleries they just look so small and meager and defenseless and paintings you know they, they almost like fall away next to all the other work and even when you put a drawing in your house it's always like you know it, you always have to like get in so close to appreciate the details you have to suddenly stop and kind of like um, uh, 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 from a distance it kind of becomes just another kind of porthole on your wall mm. um i like I, I was i was just um, the the drawings in that video came about as kind of an ongoing thing to kind of see how painterly i can make drawing like uh, because it's true to say in a way like cezanne said that when one paints one draws but that's not necessarily that doesn't necessarily apply the other way around you know you would be a fool to say what when one draws one paints you know so but to what way can you have a painterly drawing or what what how can you have a drawing that has some of the qualities one would find in a painting or how would the drawing be strong enough or have or kind of be muscular enough to kind of have the force on the wall that a painting might have mm -hmm. i mean the, the, these are just kind of um uh i you know they're, they're, they're fantasies really in a way but these spur they're irresistible to me and they kind of spur me to make these works which sometimes you know i've finished them and i'm not even sure kind of whether i've made something good or made something shit i mean that's the that's the thing and certainly sometimes that's the thing with abstract art it's the thing with pollock you know yeah like you look at pollock, and, and those are actually going to be some of my some of my uh questions mm. like like for example like um so like uh, in, in this like system right and uh you know you, you said you're sort of kind of like experimenting here mm. uh can't like it, like is it is it possible to describe what you're trying to say or is i'm trying to say xyz is that like not coherent in the system how would you go about like if someone no, were to pose that question no yeah i think it's the latter um alex i, I think um, um i think that's 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 the thing i i don't really want to say anything with the with the drawings that there, there are you know e even but even with the drawings that i've done kind of like um, my figurative art in the past you know I, I don't ever really think I, I was there was any ever a point where I kind of like I want to make the audience think this I mean maybe that's just my own kind of thing perhaps um, uh, very often the art that I start out with a kind of very clear um, idea of kind of here's what I want to do and here's kind of like very often I kind of that's ends in terrible failure um when when i tr when, when one tries to kind of 
especially the thing about visual art and painting is that you can't you can't really pre-calculate everything you know you learn through the experience of the making and and the work and the making informs you more than any kind of a priori kind of like reason reasoned kind of like a um uh, you, you can form the, the best thing you can do is form stratagems mm -hmm. and, and and really the strategy for kind of this work is just kind of to, to think about it mainly in those terms of kind of pictorialism i guess design kind of like i have this shape now i'm gonna do something in this shape okay now i've done i've put something there now what do i want to put next to it okay mm -hmm. suddenly this thing's happening mm -hmm. what's happening i'm not sure what what do i need to do do i need to look at it later or do i do that you know and as you go along you'll you'll you grow your own vocabulary or, or what have you you make continue but mm -hmm. the idea is the work becomes the engine itself i think i mean and that's something that is very particular i think to, to the making of sort of abstractionist kind of art or what have you i mean certainly i couldn't think of a literary equivalent I mean, yeah maybe, i was i was gonna i was gonna that. ask that like is it legitimate to search for equivalents because okay so if on the one hand you know uh you are you know obviating this question of like having something to say and then also you, you you're saying poetry you're, is probably the closest what um, would you say? I mean, poetry is probably oh, poetry? closer than literature. I mean, I don't know. I mean, all, all time, it, it, it's tricky to sort of, uh, it's not quite clear in my head, it, like as, as, a, as a sort of fully coherent concept. But mm -hmm. I, I think, you know, certainly someone like Malame was a writer who, like people like Cezanne and the Cubists were looking at as a kind of, uh, uh, an, an, an example of a kind of, <laughs> you know the literary equivalent of what they were doing and mm -hmm. like Trotsky kind of saw this too like he, he was very I mean his whole idea of art for art's sake is kind of a result of him reading Malame because he can't quite square Malame within his idea of a, a politically a great arts political um uh, uh, uh inclinations I mean I mean, uh, I, th I think though that the, the idea of poetry, though, like when I, when, whenever I've made poetry, when I, I've speak to poets. There seems to be this element where, um, actually, there's a wonderful quote from Maurice Blanchot that um, I read in in his book, the the space of literature, where he talks about um, what what could be called what could be something quite close to this, actually. Um, uh, Oh yes, this is a quote from The Space of Literature. This is um, uh, Maurice Blanchot. We rediscover poetry as a powerful universe of words where relations, configurations, forces are affirmed through sound, figure, rhythmic mobility in a unified and sovereignly autonomous space. Thus, the poet produces a work of pure language and language in this work is returned to its essence. He creates an object made of language, just as the painter, rather than using colours to reproduce what is, seeks the point at which his colours produce being. Or again, the poet strives, as Rilke did during his Expressionist period, or as perhaps um, uh, Ponge does, to create the poem thing, which would be, so to speak, the language of mute being. He wants to make of the poem something which all by itself will be form, existence, and being. That is the work. And um, yeah, he's a fantastic um, literary uh, critic, Blanchard.
So, so, so just, a, uh, I guess that's a segue into this. Um, so, okay. So if in this system, uh, it's not legitimate to say that you have, uh, uh, that you're trying to say something in, in these, uh, drawings, maybe in some other ones, um, it'll, it'll be different, but specifically what you put up uh, on the channel. Um, so just kind of like leading from there into, uh, the reason why I wanted to draw the kind of like poetry example, right, uh, which you brought up is so um, you also mentioned that along the way, right, as you're doing the drawings, um, you don't necessarily have a sense or perhaps not an easy sense of what's right, you know, what, what, what's wrong, you know, does this line belong here, right? But as you're going through, as you're going through the, the drawings, right, you sometimes make comments like, oh, I really like this one. I, I I like what I did here, or this part is yeah. interesting, right? So there's there, there's something go, there's something going on there, at least in this kind of like purely you know technical space. The reason mm -hmm. why I asked about uh, poetry is okay. So um, well, a couple of things. So so Greenberg in his essay, like he's sort of like off the cuff makes this kind of like stray remark about you know um, you know imagining like a poetry like you know purely of sound. And of course, such mm -hmm. things have been attempted before. Uh, to me, you know th that is a pretty illegitimate, partly for his own kind of you know concept of you know, um, uh, uh, medium specificity, right? If you have language available to you to denigrate words, which have meaning to nothing but pure sound and how, you know, they sound in the brain or whatever, that is leaving way too much on the table, right? In terms of like the creation of poetry, it's like, why even write poetry? So, but let's take that to another extreme, right? Forget, you know, you, you could sort of, you know, isolate things by sound. Let's say you want to do, you know, something parallel to these kinds of abstract drawings. Uh, if I construct, you know, uh, a poem where it's just like a bunch of perhaps random images, uh, some of them, you know, sound, you know, very pleasing to the ear, perhaps, and some of them, perhaps, I I work very hard at to sort of like, you know, uh, uh, make it, you know, sonorous in some way, musical in some way, um, mm. and then ultimately, you know, perhaps I rip out, you know, some of the words, right, rearrange the letters, turn that into a collage with like some other printout that I'm doing, and mash them together. Like, like, would you consider that? Uh, uh, well, may maybe not legitimate poetic expression because who's to say, you know, what's legitimate in that kind of universe. But uh, would you say that that is an advisable form of poetic expression? I think I think um, um, it, it depends on what the situations are for the success of the art, really. I mean, it, it, in a way, kind of all these things all that, that kind of like you, you could like say that art striving for are kind of fundamentally absurd. Um, you, you know, like, um, uh, there, there is no such thing as an independent art or kind of an independent technology, really. But, it, it, but this, at the same time, um, th this idea of kind of, um, uh, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of an idea, it's, a, it's an idea of like art, um, you know, you're, you're opening up a parallel world with the art. You're um, Green, Greenberg, Greenbergian kind of, um, I mean, as you know, like again, Greenberg um, kind of gives gives oneself gives you all sorts of opportunities to misread him, and uh, he like makes all sorts of errors later in his life. I mean, I don't I don't consider myself a Greenberg informalist. I mean, like he's but he's like a again he's an interesting figure, and he's like a 
a sort of um, a nexus point for all these different sort of culturally significant moments and themes in sort of modernism. I think, um, um, you know, I'm not interested in Greenbergian flatness. I'm not interested in necessarily in, in you know, I, I don't, I, I'm not sure how colour is part of the, the practice of the drawings anyway. So, you know, the, the, the art, you know, if, if you're going to define, you're going to, if you're trying to define your art, you've got to try and define it on your own terms as well. And that's the sort of thing I'm trying to do as well, you know, myself, you know, if drawings are quite easy to produce and, you know, they're quite easy to store and, you know, they're not that expensive to make compared to paintings. You know, I don't really have a proper kind of uh, studio space to sort of turn out sort of massive, paintings or all the funds to make those sort of things either so it, it's um, um it's this other it's this other thing where you know trying trying to sort of make sense of where sort of my practice would fit into greenbergian form was it, 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 that would be tricky because you know that's that's kind of um a different world to me but here in my world kind of like making these drawings up here i still feel that kind of what I'm doing connects in some way to kind of these artists I'm interested in and what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And I feel that in a, in a weird way, kind of like I'm being like, one is drawn inexorably to a certain kind of point, kind of like, like there's all this sort of stuff in the past I'm interested in, but it's more like one's being drawn to the future. You know, like, I, like you know, um, it's 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 one thing after another you know continuity the work is its own thing that sort of keeps it, it going you know I, I used to kind of like um, um you know I, I used to see art as a much more kind of um way, way to sort of vent my emotions and what have you but you know, like um but i don't know like i i, I quite i don't know I, I i don't i don't know if it's like about emotional experience or, or about subjectivity uh, like I, I think it's it's just about kind of like um the 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 process being the content and the work kind of leading to its own discoveries and um, um you know because all the time i've tried to take sort of certain projects and directions that i thought you know they make sense or i'm upping the ante no the best stuff i see because i've filed and stored it away and i sort of like uh, the best stuff is always the stuff that really kind of like comes all by itself by surprise it almost kind of emerges from the work itself where kind of like you look at something you made a while ago and you go oh that's got something to it or you, you look at something and it's like shit and you go kind of fuck this you know you throw it away you know Cezanne used to do this actually um, uh, how, how do you have these kinds of boundaries though like again like if you're going through some of these drawings and like, all, like not, what I, would be the it, boundaries it's, there it's changing all the time you know like uh, it's 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 a tricky thing I think, you know, um, uh, because it, it's, it's a thing with intentionality, isn't it? You know, you, you don't, it like, um, uh, it, there's, 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 there's a trick in it. You have to be skeptical of both. I, I've taught myself to be skeptical of criticism and praise. You know, I think it's tricky. I agree, and have, I agree. You have to be careful not to congratulate yourself and you have to be careful not to be too harsh on yourself. It's very easy to love the things one makes. It's very easy to compare stuff to everything else and go kind of, well, that's not right. But what if you make something that's different from everything else? Mm -hmm. You know, what if you genuinely make something that kind of like, you know, no one has made before and, you know, it looks a bit trash even to you. You know, kind of what you're going to do then? You know, I'm not saying, you know, you've rediscovered the wheel or what, but you've made something that really is your own. And kind of, you know, the, the, what's possible isn't quite, you know, what do you do? You know, what's, what's quite the way to proceed? It's, it's tricky. 
and, and it involves sometimes a lot of, the, the, the problem is not to be consistent, Alex. I think this is an important thing about aesthetics. Don't try and be consistent in your aesthetic philosophy. Just try and be dispensable. You know, otherwise you're just going to fall into aesthetic cynicism. Again, it's not about racking your brain with why am I doing this? I, I think in general aesthetic philosophies are ill-advised, right? I, I'm enough, very, you know, that's not a good idea. Fair enough. I, I, I think, you know, I, I think you know, my problem is I've got too much fucking aestheticism running through my fucking veins. Like, like, um, I, I, but I think it really is kind of like, it's, it's not about kind of, oh, what am I going to do? Like, like, who's going to look at this? You know, like who even, like, what, you know, like, uh, you know, like maybe getting back to what we were saying earlier, I quite like the kind of purposelessness of, of, of that kind of thing or the, the purposive purposelessness that kind of like, don't worry, I don't worry about all the shit kind of like, at the, like, I just know my responsibility. And this is what I take from Dan, you know, and what Dan says. I like, you're like, your responsibility is to make the fucking thing, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, you're like, you know, what, you know at the, and if you're doing that, you're doing something right. You know, like, um, uh, and I think, you know, you were talk- we were talking about success as well. I think at a certain level, I, I forget who said this, it might have been Brian Eno, but failure repeated enough becomes success. You know, like, there are failures, but like, what happens when you can, like, go turn the failure into a fucking technique or when the failure, oh, the accident becomes shit. You know, this is the thing about improvisation and what have you. Like, mm-hmm. recognizing failure and recognizing success are all, again, all the time, things are adjusting and things are changing if you're working kind of properly. And this is what writers will feel, I'm sure, and, and poets, when they're composing as well, they're sort of writing, if you sit down and you just write a thousand words a day or, you know, fucking 500 words a day for a couple of months, at the end of that, you've got a novella, you've got something, and then you just go back and like, like a coal miner at the face of meaning, you just fucking edit something out of it. You know, like, uh, you know, this is the work produces the work. Yeah, that's that's some, that's some of the approach that I'm taking with this current novel. I mean, you know, uh, sometimes I'm like working, uh, like doing various things around the house and, uh, you know, a scene comes to me and it's like, fuck it, like, even if I'm not there in the book, you know, yeah. I'm very compelled to do the scene right now. You know, I'm going to I'm going to do the scene. right? I'm not going to wait. Um yeah. Anyway, like this was a, this was a very good, perhaps it's a good place to close out. It's going to be, I think, uh, four hours, like it's going to be about four hours, I think, out even after a few edits, but we should actually, we should do this uh, again uh, soon. I mean, this was a very nice freewheeling conversation and also much less preparation than the conversations I usually do. I'm very perfectionistic in that way. And it takes me a long time, but this took me by contrast, a lot less time to prep for. I think we, we got through it in one piece. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, um, like, I mean, there's all sorts of things that like I, I want to do videos um, with you about. Like, I, 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 I recently I've rewatched a ton of Woody Allen films with mm-hmm. my uh, partner Nick, and kind of like so they're fresh in my mind. And I've, I've read all, all all the stuff that you've written about Woody Allen, and kind of I, I oh think from from the book or from the website. Well, from your website uh-huh. um, actually, and kind of like uh, uh, also this this other thing where you got into exchange with some prick on a website like you oh jonathan rousenbaum if you say you didn't know what you're talking about with like woody allen which is like she's just like the funniest fucking thing i've ever fucking read like um um, yeah like um so yeah like if if there's someone to talk to um about um woody allen i definitely want to have a conversation with you about. yeah we 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 could do that in fact like uh i mean we really brought this up uh, this time around maybe for the next conversation my responsibility is i'm gonna watch Ali eats the soul. You watch After Hours, right? The Scorsese yeah, film. Yeah, I'll watch After Hours. Yeah, watch, may- watch Ali eats the fear. It's the soul. That's a good film. Very good film. All right. 
Um, and, and also, I mean, like, you know, whatever comes up in the interim, like maybe if, uh, I don't know, maybe if, uh, you, you come across something with NFT, so you find interesting, we could bring that up, like whatever, you know, um, I, I think it's nice to have like a little contrast to some of my highly kind of mechanized prepared, because that's really how my brain works much of the time. And having, you know, something that's like in the other direction is pretty good. Yeah, um, it's, it's, all, all the videos I ever do, like with people are like just on the pure manic energy <laughs> in a way it's, yeah. it's terrible uh, that, that's a good thing it's something i have to actually cultivate right it doesn't come to me naturally but you know whatever um anyway this is a uh, very nice we're gonna stop yeah, this, was good. this is good we'll do it again sometime yeah. well, like i'm sorry if the last 15 minutes i've had my i've had to turn my um, uh, tumble dryer on so that's been isn't it like isn't it like 4 a.m over there right now yeah, it's uh, 3 a.m. in fact. Yeah, but it's like I, I had to turn on a tumble dryer because I've got a uh, yeah. dryer. I, I, I wouldn't hold anything against you. In fact, I'm shocked that you agreed to like talk at 11. I mean, I no, literally okay. I literally I'm go to sleep at 11. I'm, I'm rather nocturnal at that respect. All right. But yeah, thanks for talking, man. Like, I'm, uh, like uh, I'll talk to you soon, yeah? Oh my god. Oh my god.